You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Because we live in very strange and uncertain times, and uh, for many of us we don't know what's around the corner, of course. We're subject not only to COVID, but other incidentals in life. The other thing that is exciting and is important, of course, is the world events that are happening. Have a look at this uh, very helpful study on Barnabas. Not a subject that I heard before, and I sort of felt it's very nice to really focus sometimes on people that work in the background. And as I uncovered and unpacked this subject, I was amazed at the material and the colour that we can add to a very faithful servant in Christ. So Barnabas, what's our aim for our special effort? And there are a number of things that we want to achieve. First one is to be inspired by the generosity of the Barnabas spirit. And we'll see that in a multifaceted role, whether it's financially, emotionally, spiritually or ecclesially. He worked through all those various elements, was a very wonderful and a very faithful and a very consistent brother. We want to develop practical strategies and a strong spiritual fortitude to help work through the tough issues. All of us face difficulties in life, doesn't matter whether we're younger or older, we've got to work through those tough issues. And Barnabas was a person who did that with a very gentle spirit a very amazing spirit, a very encapsulating spirit. And he helped individuals like Saul or through to John Mark uh, to mature and develop in the truth. And also particularly to develop a unifying spirit of cooperation as we strengthen the things that remain and patiently endure until the return of Christ. So again, there are elements that we want to draw out of the character of Barnabas that really have a flow on and a practical effect uh, to enthuse us in these last days as we await the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you would have seen, obviously, the subjects. We're going to work through this. Uh, our subject this evening is a generous member. He starts off at a point of giving financial support to the ecclesia, and uh, he grows through that to become a true friend. As he enveloped Saul and brought him uh, back into the ecclesia, he was uh, a good man. He left with Paul on missionary work as well. He was very persistent and, of course, uh, a thoughtful brother as well. We'll see sort of at the end of Acts chapter 15, how he was uh, importantly involved in developing, supporting and blending together ecclesias that had sort of different approaches to the truth. So, you know, a, a really interesting set of studies. So, of course, tonight, uh, a generous member. This is the starting point. This is the introduction to Barnabas. He's a man, as we said, sort of is in the shadows, really, when we look at the book of Acts and relatively unstudied. We might even consider Barnabas as we gloss through the narrative, and we've done that obviously over many years, uh, that he's just you know, part of the framework of, of what was happening in the book of Acts. And in many ways, he was overshadowed by some of those mega disciples, mega apostles, we might say, Peter and Paul, and there's other individuals. They seem to fade into the background, and sometimes, unfortunately, we gloss over them. But there's a wealth of information, as I said, as we start to blend that together, we can paint a very colourful picture of a man who was very well-rounded in many aspects of ecclesial life and was very supportive. And he had that beautiful fatherly spirit in which he gently influenced lives in a positive way, uh, individuals to achieve their greater potential. I think for all of us that's a bit of a challenge. As the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian Ecclesia, he said, you've got many teachers in Christ, but you haven't got many fathers. And we just love those you know, grandmas and grandpas in the ecclesia who have been consistent and faithful, who have beautiful characters, and they inspire and help us by their consistency. So when we look at Barnabas, he's first introduced to us 
uh, in a very practical way, as this new ecclesia is bursting forth. And of course, there's a number of memberships that have been added to the ecclesia, and that, of course, brought problems as well. Through Saul, who at this particular time was, was quite, um, op quite opposed to the development of brothers and sisters and the truth as we know it, uh, he had impacted very seriously upon families and particularly upon wives who were left bereft of their husbands and support. And of course, this meant that the early ecclesia was going to have a problem and an issue as far as supporting from a practical and financial viewpoint these widows that were, were struggling. And Barnabas was a person who came into that scene and provided, as we'll unpack a little bit later on tonight. And as I said, later on he assisted this man Saul, who turned the corner, did a U-turn, he became a brother in Christ, and many of the ecclesia in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas were very reticent to accept this man Saul because they, they'd heard of his violence and his anger and his aggressiveness. So when we think about that, the work of Barnabas is quite amazing because by extension... He influenced and assisted a man who wrote over two-thirds of the New Testament. So we can imagine if we were to uh, put a hypothetical in front of ourselves, if Saul didn't come into the truth, you know, what would be the construction of the New Testament? So backing back from that, of course, we look at Barnabas, sort of obscure in the shadows, but he had such a major influence in the writings of the Apostle Paul as we know our New Testament today. So in our Ecclesiastes, brothers and sisters, we might be doing small things in life now, but we never know what the final outcome and the influence will be of those events. We know that our brothers and sisters who were here in the Woodville Ecclesia many years ago who have fallen asleep will be the recipients as they observe the amazing impact of their lives in our lives and yours as well. So Barnabas not only helped Saul, um, he influenced and was uh, very supportive of a new ecclesia growing up in Antioch. And there was a little bit of difference of opinion between the Jerusalem ecclesia, which is very conservative, we might say, and the Antioch ecclesia, which was Gentile in origin and perhaps viewed as quite liberal. Well, Barnabas was the person who bridged that gap and who was sent to the Antioch ecclesia to give some advice back to Jerusalem and to nurture that ecclesia. So again, that was a, a particularly wonderful development. And he observed in that Gentile ecclesia in Antioch the grace of God. That was the thing that he particularly observed and was encouraged himself. Uh, as we said, he later on went to Tarsus to attach himself to the Apostle Paul, or really to bring Paul back. Paul had been up in Tarsus in, in obscurity for 10 years. And as um, Barnabas was helping grow the Ecclesia in Antioch, he realised he needed new resources, more resources. And who did he think of? Well, he thought of the man Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul. He travelled to Tarsus and brought Paul back so that Paul could assist in the development of that Ecclesia. So again, you know, a man who recognised that at those particular stages he couldn't do everything in the Ecclesia. He needed other people to give support to and help. So he called upon the Apostle Paul. And that, of course, led to his engagement with Paul on mission work. And when we think about that, and I don't know if you think about that, but I thought, well, if I was alongside the Apostle Paul, trying to keep up with him, it would take a lot of energy, a lot of vigour, a lot of determination. Barnabas was the man who could do that. Right? We see Paul and we see him surging out into new worlds and, and spreading the gospel, and that's perhaps all we focus on. What about the, the, the brethren that were alongside who kept pace with the energy and enthusiasm of, of, of Saul, the Apostle Paul? Barnabas was that sort of man. And he was a younger man. We, we often tend to just think of him, oh, perhaps he was in his 50s and 60s, and he seems to stop in that age bracket for the whole narrative of the Scripture. But he's actually quite a young man, around about the age of the Apostle Paul. Um, so he had that drive, he had that fervour, in which he could keep up with the Apostle Paul on that mission work. 
And then, of course, another layer, John Mark, who turned back from being with the Apostle Paul on that mission journey. Um, Paul couldn't deal with that because, well, he didn't think John Mark had the consistency and the backbone to, to keep up with him in foreign territories. But Barnabas, again, is with that fatherly spirit, embraced that individual John Mark and helped and supported him, gave him a second chance, as it were. Um, but we know that after Acts chapter 15, Barnabas went on his particular direction with John Mark. And again, through the influence of Barnabas, we have the gospel of Mark. All right, so John Mark was a young disciple that Barnabas took under his wings, and later on it was John Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark. And again, by extension, perhaps through the influence of Barnabas. So you know, quite a major part of our New Testament uh, has threads and connections through to the work of Barnabas. Well, what do we know about Barnabas? Well, he possibly studied under Gamaliel. Now, we do have to add a few sort of little projections, I suppose, in our study because we don't want just to take the narrative. We do want to add some background. So it is possible that, that he studied under Gamaliel. I say that because he seemed to know who Saul was. They were roughly about the same age. He was a Levite as well, so he's very well versed in the law of Moses. Again, something that Saul would have been uh, embedded in as he grew up through uh, the education of Gamaliel. So when we <clears throat> have a look at the uh, chronology of Barnabas's life, it matches uh, almost to the age of the Apostle Paul. He would have been perhaps a few years older than Paul. So here we have uh, a timeline, and there's the birth of Christ. A few years after that would have been possibly the birth of Barnabas, and of course Paul as well. But we go through this whole area of discipleship and we follow through uh, the life of the Apostle Paul, but particularly Barnabas. And uh, here we're sort of highlighting around about AD 37, he would be assisting Saul. Saul was baptised for three years, three years in Arabia, he comes to Jerusalem, everyone steps back, it's Barnabas who, tried, who attempts and who did that, he introduced him to the Ecclesia. Uh, he was with Paul in the Antioch Ecclesia uh, for about a year, they're helping to service the brothers and sisters and growing them. He went with Paul on Paul's first journey around about AD 48, 49. He was with Paul, Jerusalem Conference, AD 51. And that's where that division happened and they separated. But that's not the end of the story because there's a couple of other references to Barnabas a little bit later on, which is really quite wonderful. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, when Paul was on his third journey, he commends Barnabas. He writes about Paul's ability to fund the gospel by himself. He said, look, under the law, I, I could ask for financial support from the ecclesia because I'm doing the work of God, but I don't, and Barnabas didn't, didn't, doesn't either. <laughs> so he makes a very lovely comment. Even although they had a, a sharp division here, he still commends the example of Barnabas as a man who funded substantial mission work here in, in the epistles of the Corinthians. And then finally, there's a mention here in Colossians chapter 4, around about AD 61, that was written. Again, there's a mention of, of Barnabas there. So, you know, there's little add-ons to the story. It's not they just had a sharp division. Um, Paul is commending the work of Barnabas a little bit later on in his epistle. So one would think, obviously, still alive there. So just perhaps a few years older, maybe five or six years older than the Apostle Paul, we would suggest. Now, religious historians who lived around about that time, or Clement of Alexandria, who's about 100 years after the, the death of Christ, so it's only 100 years, not a, a long period of time, He's, he writes from a historical viewpoint, he says, Barnabas knew Jesus, witnessed his miracles, and was a follower, follower of Christ. Eusebius, who was another 150 years after that, included him as one of the 70 disciples sent out by Christ. So Barnabas, who was he? Well, some identify him with uh, a brother called Joseph Barsabas. You, know, you might recollect reading about Joseph Barsabas. 
he was one who was selected to possibly be an apostle in the place of Judas. Right? And some have said, oh, well, that might have been Barnabas. In fact, I've got a note here <coughs> that Adam Clark says, some manuscripts translated as Barnabas, not Barsabas. However, uh, to append some further information that, in Acts chapter 15 and verse 22, um, Joseph Barsabas is recorded there with Barnabas. So it would seem as though they were different uh, individuals. Uh, but let's paint a little picture here, which could be a possibility. Was he the rich young ruler that um, raced up to the Lord Jesus Christ and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I want you to come back to Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. I'm not going to place a lot of emphasis on this, but it is interesting to look at some of the, the parallels and the connecting points between this young man and the energy, the enthusiasm, the dedication and the example of Barnabas as he gives financially to the ecclesia in the book of Acts. We're coming back to Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. Mark 10 verse 17. It says, And when he was gone forth in the way, there came one running. Okay, so I just want to stop there for a minute because we see here is a young person. Well, we would think he's young. <laughs> um, and he's running. So there's energy and there's enthusiasm. And when we think about Barnabas, and as we unpack that a little bit more in our studies, you'll see that he had the energy to keep up with a man called Saul or the Apostle Paul. So again, Barnabas, we, we know he's a vigorous young person. Uh, this, the record in Matthew, we won't go to, but Matthew 19, verse 16, the question is by this young man, what good thing must I do? So this young man who comes to Christ was like a task-orientated person. He thought he had to tick boxes or do things uh, to inherit the kingdom of God. And Christ pointed out to this young man in verse 21, that he needed to, to divest himself of, of something that was perhaps a little bit distracting to him. Uh, Christ pointed out he shouldn't be a task-orientated person, he needed to be a relational person. So verse 21 says, Jesus beholding, loved him, and said unto him, You lack one thing, go and sell what you have, give to the poor, and follow me. He recognises, of course, the thing that this young man had to do. And a little bit later on, we'll see how Barnabas, that was one of the foremost points of Barnabas, is became a very relational orientated person. He, well, in today's terminology, we'll say he's a people person. You know, there are some in our ecclesia that are really good with that. They seem to keep in tap with what's going on, you know, births of babies and who's sick in the ecclesia. And they know what's going on because they're relational. And this is sort of what Barnabas developed himself into. You'll notice in verse 19 that Christ prefaced this with, do the commandments. And again, this, so this was no ignorant man because he says in verse 20, I've done these from my youth. I, I, I'm a young person. I've, you know, through my teen years and onwards, I've, I've performed all these. So this is not an ignorant person. And again, Barnabas was a Levite. He knew the law. But the, the beautiful thing in verse 21 is, it says, Jesus beholding him, loved him. How did John Mark, who wrote this gospel, know that? How did that comment get embedded? Because that's not like a normal observational narrative comment. That's something from the heart. That's something that's revealed. Jesus loved this particular person. So John Mark, you might be aware, actually was the cousin to Barnabas. He, there was a family relationship to Barnabas. In fact, Barnabas was connected to a wealthy family. Mary was his aunt, who was the mother of John Mark, his cousin. So Colossians 4 verse 10 says, John Mark, the cousin to Barnabas. All right, so there it is in Colossians. That family linkage straight away. So 
there, there was a wealthy family there. Mary, we know, had a house, possibly the upper room, where the disciples and the ecclesia regularly met. Um, Acts 12, verse 12 to 16 says, Peter went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark. So there's a family connection here. And when we sort of think about that verse, it's a verse that sort of must have been revealed from a, from a personal perspective. And that's a, a fairly um, unique comment about Jesus loving this particular person. I think it's only used, well, it's used by the Apostle John, of course, uh, as an expression of his love for Christ and the privilege that he had in Christ that Jesus actually loved him. So interesting to see that embedded there in verse 21. Well, uh, Christ's advice to this young man is that he needed to give something to the poor. And is that something that sort of this person thought about and later on resolved that? and divested himself of his, his possessions and had that generosity of spirit, took on board the constructive comments of Christ and became that sort of person. Because verse 22 says he had great possessions. Now what's interesting with that comment is the Greek word katima, only three occurrences here, Acts 2 verse 45 where they sold their possessions and Acts 5 verse 1, all of those events are connected with Barnabas. So why did Christ tell this young person to sell his possessions? Was it because he was a Levite? Should be more focused on you know, the religious aspect rather than be distracting by his possessions? Um, and you'll notice in verse 29, interestingly, a little bit further down, when Christ has a, discussions, a discussion with the disciples, he puts this little phrase in verse 29, lands, right? which I'm going to draw a dot point across to Acts because it says Barnabas having lands sold them. What's interesting about that verse is that's the only reference to like a possession. Because in verse 29, Christ says, There's no man that's left house or brethren or sister, father, mother, wife, children or land. So he talks about houses and lands particularly. Property. We might say property. And that's the point in Acts 4 verse 37. It says, Barnabas having land. So, you know, I'm not going to be pedantic about this, but it's nice just to sort of colour in. Or maybe that, that could have been Barnabas, perhaps. So... Did Barnabas take on board? Was this a young man? I don't know. There's some interesting connecting points. So as we say, uh, Matthew identifies him as a young man. Mark 10 adds, Jesus loved him. That's the same unique expression used by the Apostle John. How would Mark, who wrote the Gospel, know this? Barnabas was his cousin. Maybe an added comment. Luke, of course, describes him as a ruler. Uh, and obviously there was some prestigiousness in the position that this man had possibly a Sanhedrin member, because the same Greek word is used of Nicodemus, rule of the Jews. So it could have been member of the Sanhedrin, which means, again, by extension, that he might have known Saul personally. To have a young man of enthusiasm who Jesus loved, he was genuine, he was invited to follow Jesus, and was a ruler or possibly a Sanhedrin member. So, you know, it's always good to throw in a little bit of supposition at the, the front end of the special effort to get everyone's mind sort of working, thinking, well, yeah, maybe, possibly. Well, we do want to come back to Acts now to deal with the reality of Scripture and obviously Barnabas himself and the record of the narrative in which we're introduced to this wonderful expression of support to the ecclesia. So we're coming back to Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. We know the background to the ecclesia had an amazing environment. Acts 4 and verse 32 it says they were one heart and one soul. So, you know, there's, there's a burst of energy, love and appreciation, not only for Christ, but for each other as well. And this is being felt in the ecclesia. And this context introduces us to Barnabas, who was a uniter. As we go through and look at all the studies, we'll see this unification process that Barnabas was involved in. 
all those instances we look at, he's, he's, he's bringing forward that unifying bond, whether that's in an individual or an ecclesia like Antioch or gospel extension work, he's bringing people together. So here is, is, is a situation where they're all of one heart and soul, but there was, a, there was an issue in the ecclesia is that some families had no income, no financial support. So end of verse 32 says... Um, Neither said any of them that ought of the things that he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. So this was a, an amazing expansion of the ecclesia, 3,000 members to 5,000 members, absolutely massive. And the apostles were feeling the weight of this responsibility. A little bit later on, they appointed stewards to, to look after the practical concerns for the widows particularly. So there were some issues that had to be resolved here. Uh, both socially and economically. So we notice in verse 34 that there were many, uh, it says that there were many who were generous and having lands or houses sold them and brought that to the apostles for distribution. Uh, in the Greek there's a continuing tense there. I think the diaglot says constantly selling and bringing. So it wasn't just like a one-off gesture. Uh, that we read about with Ananias and Sapphira, a little bit in chapter 5 here. It's like a constant process. The ecclesia was a very giving ecclesia. So here's the atmosphere. They were all filled. They had all things in common. Great grace was on them all. So very, very inclusive. And this is the context. This is the important thing. This is the context which introduces us to Barnabas because he is always mentioned encouraging, nurturing, appreciating fellowship. So we live in a very self-centered world, don't we, where everything's about us. Supposedly, I mean, if we're in the world, that's what it's all about. It's about us. Even in relationship, if it doesn't work with us, well, go start a new relationship. You've got a family, it doesn't matter. Someone will look after that. Uh, and even as far as material possessions are concerned or everything, it's all about us and me and my needs. So this is quite a challenge for us to embrace the Barnabas spirit of thinking about others and trying to nurture and grow people through to their ultimate potential. This is what Barnabas is doing. So you notice in verse 32 there's that word uh, possessed. In verse 34 again, uh, possessors of lands. And chapter 5 verse 1, sold a possession. So this is the connecting point, the sort of the bookends, in which we're embedded with an introduction to Barnabas. And the reason for that is because Barnabas was a sincere, honest, transparent and generous person. Really that's the bookend of this whole narrative. The ecclesia had issues, people were helping to fund it, but right in the middle of that was Barnabas, who was a contrast to Ananias and Sapphira, was generous and sincere and open-hearted. He wasn't doing it for any prestigiousness. He was doing it because people had a need. So that's the contrast, and that's why we're introduced in chapter 5, verse 1, to Ananias and Sapphira. So this little phrase in verse 32, they had all things in common, is, well, that's the Greek word koinos, where we get our word koinonia, fellowship. They had fellowship. And really, that's a lovely definition of what fellowship is all about, isn't it? It's not the statement of faith or the constitution or you know, the, the doctrines to be rejected. It wasn't a legalistic booklet that they were adhering to. It was the reality, reality, the practical reality of what fellowship was all about. And the ecclesia was enjoying that. And for Barnabas, that was his definition of fellowship. It was outreaching to individuals or to ecclesias to share and help and support. So for Barnabas, who was a Levite, embedded in the law of Moses, fellowship wasn't just a theory, it was a practical working of the Spirit of Christ in his particular life. 
And so we have added into the ecclesia now this individual called, well, his name is Joseph, verse 36. We know him as Barnabas. His actual name was Joseph, which means, well, adding, doesn't it? Joseph means adding into. So here's this man, Joseph, who's adding into the ecclesial context. He's not keeping back, which is the comment of Ananias and Sapphira. There's a particular narrative, narrative term there. They kept back. Well, here's Joseph who kept adding. All right, so there's a contrast there as well. His name means adding or increasing. So where this, this thread of, we might even say apathy or disunity or self-centeredness that was being introduced into the ecclesia, Barnabas stands as a contrast to that. So I think for ourselves, brothers and sisters, we need to um, have a think of where we, we sit with all of this. Um, ecclesial fellowship. Uh, how do we view that? I, I know as the Christadelphian Brotherhood, we place a lot of emphasis on our constitution, our statement of faith, rightly so, no problem with that. But we've got to extend that in a practical way as well. So here's what Paul says. It doesn't matter what you have. What matters is how much you're willing to give from what you have, Second Corinthians chapter 8. It's talking about Corinthian ecclesia, supporting the uh, financial needs of the Jerusalem ecclesia. I've got a photo here of a couple of um, families, brothers and sisters, Christadelphian brothers and sisters, who've gone across to Kenya um, to devote a portion of their life to helping grow young ones, um, educate them in the scriptures, and if we've seen the reports from Kenya, quite amazing the, the amount of baptisms they have. Now, that's quite a challenge, and that's astounding to me, but that's what fellowship really is all about, isn't it? It's wanting to, to share the gospel, and there's people that are big enough who are risk-takers who will take a young family like this and go to Kenya to fellowship with brothers and sisters of like faith. Quite amazing, really, quite challenging. So Barnabas... The first point we stop off, we're introduced, he's challenging us to really examine who we are, where we're going, are we genuine, do we have integrity, do we have that Barnabas spirit. So it's not just how much we give, it's how much we hold back. And again, it's particularly tough when we're sort of through our teens, we start work, maybe young marriage, we've got to invest, we've got to save, there's this whole financial focus, and it is tough. We've got kids going to heritage, we've got to fund all that. It is true, it is you know, very difficult. But in my life, I've found that the generous people are often the people who don't have a lot. Um, they're people that, that aren't particularly embellished with all the things of this world, but they want to help and they want to do what they can do. And I know Beth said a lovely story the other day. She talked, we've got a sister in our ecclesia who um, uh, gave Beth a little cake in a tuna tin. And, um, you know, it wasn't in some sort of fancy wrapping or whatever. It was in some little tuna tin. And um, she gave that to Beth to give to another sister who Beth was going to see. And I thought that was just a, a sort of really old-fashioned, wonderful little incidental to how people that don't often have a lot in life are the ones that perhaps are sometimes more um, generous. And there, of course, Paul encourages us uh, to become cheerful givers. So again, this is another layer. Not only do we give, uh, but we have to be cheerful givers. We, want, we actually want to do that, not through compulsion or because in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, everybody else is doing it, so we, we feel, oh, well, I've got to do it. I mean, that's not the, the spirit at all. So his name's Joseph, but look what happens in verse 36. His name actually gets changed. The apostles nicknamed him the son of encouragement or son of consolation. It's a bit of a twist to his name because we don't call him Joseph. We call him Barnabas, and that was not his real name. It was the nickname that the apostles gave to him to describe the spirit of who he was. And we know, well, that's, that happens right through Scripture, doesn't it? Uh, Jesus Christ renamed Cephas, said, your, your name will be Peter, the rock. Uh, James and John, he called them 
the sons of Boanerges, the sons of Thunder, because they were very passionate. So he named them, them that. And so Barnabas was renamed in a very friendly way by the apostles because of a particular characteristic he had. So Barnabas means uh, son of Nabas, which Nabas is prophecy or interpretation. So, so, so the word Barnabas actually means a son of prophecy. It means to like bubble over, to be enthusiastic for the word of God. Right? So it's not just a prophet who could foretell. This man loved the Bible, he loved the word of God, and he just bubbled over with it. A little bit later on, we learn he was an actual prophet. Uh, that's mentioned when he went up to the ecclesia there in Antioch. He was, he's described as a prophet. Chapter 11, verse 24, it says, he's full of the Holy Spirit. So not only did he have solid grounding in the law of Moses as a Levite, he also bubbled over the things of the truth. So he wasn't just a sort of a, a formal ritual-based person. He had an enthusiasm for the things of God. Now added to that, in brackets, is interpreted the son of consolation. And that is the defining element of Barnabas. It's the Greek word paraklesis, and it means to come alongside someone. Okay, we get our word uh, paralegal or paramedic, people that come alongside to help and to support. That's Barnabas. That's the core element of the character of Barnabas. So Joseph Barnabas, actual name was Joseph, surname by the apostles. It wasn't his actual name. They saw that spirit of encouragement. They wanted to rename him. Um, so it involved a further translation into the son of consolation. And there we've got the paraclesis. Um, so he's not only publicly enthusiastic, he had the capacity to privately encourage individuals. That's the thing we'll see. He wasn't up on the platform. He was down amongst the brothers and sisters looking out for individuals. Amazing work that he did. And so here we see that Greek word again used a bit later on. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. He exhorted them. That's his name right there. That's Paraclesis. That's the, that's the, the, the comforter. That's who he was. He exhorted them uh, with purpose of heart. And here's his name, Joseph, I guess. Uh, much people was added to the Lord. So interesting, you know, just this, this whole name of, of Joseph Barnabas. And of course, Jesus used that particular phrase. We've got that phrase, the son of consolation, Paracletus. He used that in John 15, 26. This is the phrase. He says, when the comforter is come, who I'll send from the Father, which is the spirit of the truth, he will testify of me. So again, the angel, the work of the Holy Spirit as well, that gave comfort and encouragement to the apostles as they navigated a very difficult pathway in life. That, of course, was also uh, who, who Barnabas was. He became that comforting element. So he was, he was outstanding as far as that was uh, concerned. So again, for ourselves, uh, here's where that, that word is used. This is the word paraclesis, and this is the name... Uh, the, the consoler or consultation or comforted. If there be any consolation, there it is. That's that. There's Barnabas's character in Christ. Any comfort or love, fellowship of the Spirit, any bowels and mercies. There's that same Greek word, parakleo. And this one, this quote is very interesting because it's a contrast to who Barnabas was. Woe to them that are rich. You've received your parakletus. So your comfort, your encouragement. So there's, there's two quotations there. Barnabas possibly... At one stage was over here with his wealth and wondering what to do with it, and Christ redirected him, possibly. Uh, and then, of course, we see very much that spirit of generosity, comfort, encouragement, as he came alongside ecclesiastes and individuals uh, to help or to support. So, Joseph uh, Barnabas, which we've got, the increaser of encouragement or comfort. That's there in verse 36. That's, a, that's the narrative there. Now, here's the question for us. If brothers and sisters were to nickname you, 
What do you think that name would be? What's the one thing you do well in the truth? So, if brothers and sisters were sort of nickname you instead of calling you for, by your normal name, but something that was a, a dominant characteristic attribute in your life, what would that nickname be? Brother faithful? Sister integrity? Brother consistent? Or brother mediocre? Or sister never here? You know, they're sort of the nicknames, and we do this, don't we? We characterise people, we think, oh, yeah, well, they're never here, or, you know, or they're always sad-faced, or, or they're always encouraging and helpful. So we need to become Barnabases, and we need to sort of think about our own lives. Is it positive? Is it helpful? Are we tapping into the needs of individuals in our ecclesia? So this is where that encouragement, and this is really going through our topics, we'll see this in every incident that Barnabas is involved in. So here he is encouraging the new ecclesia in acts of generosity. There it is there. Encouraging a new brother despite his baggage. So here's Saul comes out of the desert of Arabia from Damascus. He's downhearted. He's coming into an environment that might be quite hostile. And Barnabas embraces him and introduces him to the apostles. Um, encouraging a new direction of growth in the ecclesia. There in Acts chapter 11, he's sent up to Antioch. There's a, there's a, there's a burst of enthusiasm from a Gentile ecclesia up there. They're coming into the truth. Jerusalem ecclesia sends Barnabas up there to help develop and encourage that ecclesia. Acts chapter 13 and 14, encouraging new converts through mission work. Again, he goes with the Apostle Paul and he's bringing on board, encouraging people with the good news of the gospel. And then in Acts 15, at the end of Acts 15, he's encouraging a young brother who initially defaulted, gave him a second go. Didn't work out too well the first time, but Barnabas didn't discard him. He actually helped him through that situation to become, well, the writer of the Gospel of Mark. So amazing addition uh, to that particular individual's lives. A uh, beautiful quote, I think, which characterises Barnabas. An anxious heart weighs a man down, but a kind word cheers him up. And that's where I see Barnabas, whether he's interacting with this new ecclesia, with Saul, with John Mark, the Jerusalem conference. He just seems to be this man that effervesces positivity and encouragement. You know, last days, brothers and sisters, Christ around the corner, hang on for a little bit longer. Just seem to be that sort of person. Well, what else do we know about Barnabas? Well, it goes on and it says that he was a Levite. Verse 36, we gloss over this, don't we? He was a Levite. Now, this is going to be important a bit later on when there's a conversation about the law of Moses and how relevant it was. So, again, we just gloss over that thing. Okay, well, he's a Levite. But, you know, a little bit later on, that was really important because the Jerusalem Ecclesia wanted someone grounded in the law of Moses and knew what it was all about to make a, a balanced decision. Well, he was a Levite, and how come he had lots of wealth? Because you'd be thinking, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Levites were supposed to be the teacher of Israel. That was their job. Their job wasn't, you know, to accumulate vast assets. So how did that happen? Well, and that's true enough, the Levites had a focus on teaching. But they did have assets, they did have land. So we might have the concept, well, the Levites never owned anything. Um, but they actually did. Joshua 21 shows the Levites had 48 cities throughout the land, six cities of refuge. And there were some Levites who wanted to operate in the temple while they would devote their land um, to the service of God. So they'd rent it or sell it, um, and whatever money was coming in from that, they could devote that to the temple service. So there's a couple of quotations that talk about Levites and the assets that they could have. Uh, Deuteronomy 18 and verse 8 says, they'll receive portions, so this is from the tithing process, besides that which comes from the sale of their father's inheritance. 
Okay, so if they devoted themselves to the service of the temple, we don't want to work uh, this land, it is our family inheritance, we'll rent it out, money can go to the temple, um, or, or I guess to themselves to support their teaching work. So they were able to have investments. Again, 1 Kings 2.26, the king says to Abiathar the priest, get you to Anathoth to your own fields for you're worthy of death. So again, um, Abiathar was the high priest and he had possessions there in Anathoth, 1 Kings 2.26. Jeremiah was a priest. Jeremiah 32 verse 7, he brought land in Anathoth. Okay, so there are some references that show that the Levites obviously could have possessions. And in this particular case, uh, Barnabas was a Levite and he had extensive assets. It goes on to talk about that in the country of Cyprus. So verse um, 37 says he sold the land and he gave it to the apostles. So it's possible that he had a sizable asset somehow in Cyprus and Cyprus was renowned for its orchards, its farming, um, probably a lot better than the land of Israel itself. So he sold all that and he gave or part, at least part of it because we know he supported, he must have had other investments because he supported his mission work uh, through that. But he gave a substantial part of that to the apostles. And in the context, what it was is Barnabas is not trying to prove himself to anyone around him. He's doing this from a genuine, heartfelt desire. So you'll notice that progression, verse 37. Having land sold and, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet, but, 5 verse 1. So there's a contrast. There's a dark cloud come into the narrative and it's a different spirit that Ananias and Sapphira had. I mean, they laid it at the feet of the apostles. It says that at the end of verse 2. But their heart, and this is the key, key point, I've got this coloured in, verse 3 and 4, the word heart. All right? Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? And again, in verse 4, did you conceive this thing in your heart? So that's the, the crux of the matter. They pretended they were generous. It's a contrast to the genuineness of Barnabas. He wasn't pretending at all. So, for ourselves, are we pretenders? Um, do we undermine what other people are doing in the truth? Do we say, oh, you know, what, what I think they're doing or... That was a bit annoying that they did that. I mean, we can, we can have that spirit as well. So the contrast between Ananias and Sapphira and Barnabas is quite substantial. It's showing the fullness of his commitment. It wasn't just about the money. It was about the heart. It was with his full heart. He bought generously to the apostles. And, of course, that's the encouragement to us as well. As we think about our own lives, what's the motivating point of why we're doing something? I think that's the critical thing. And sometimes we have fundraising events that, well, you know, on the eastern seaboard, our ecclesias have suffered flooding. Now, are we donating because everybody else is doing it? Or is this something we feel we should do or we want to do? So here's Hebrews 6, verse 10. God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labour of love, which you've shown toward his name, and you've ministered to the saints and you minister. Um, there's the key word, is God. We're not doing it to impress anyone else. But we just because we want to, we feel that they're our brothers and sisters and we can help and support them in some small way. It's an interesting contrast because it says um, in verse 37, Barnabas sold some land. And if you remember, there's a contrast with a man who had a very dark heart, Judas, who was actually acquiring land with the money that people were supposedly devoting to the truth. He had his hand in the bag. So there's, there's a contrast between um, Judas and Barnabas. He was numbered among us, but Barnabas didn't have necessarily high credentials, but he laid it at the apostles' feet. He was part of the ministry of Christ, 
And he was also part of the ministry and was surnamed, well known by the apostles. I mean, it's Ecclesia of 5,000 people. They knew Barnabas' character. Uh, this man purchased a field, or he was known as the son of encouragement, and he sold it. He used the rewards of iniquity. He used his own assets. He gave to the poor. Her Judah stole from the poor. Uh, and, of course, his death was a particularly sad event. But here, as far as Barnabas was concerned, he didn't seek public prominence. Something done you know, reasonably quietly, although it's here in the na uh, narrative. So there's uh, a, an interesting contrast between Judas and Barnabas. So what's this all mean to us? Well, Barnabas knows uh, that he is there to support the ecclesia, and that's the introduction for us of where Barnabas was at, financial support. And he gave of his best, really. So for ourselves, we need to do that. Here's some uh, challenges. The Bible contains many references to helping the oppressed. How practical are we in financial support? Didn't God decree that 10% was a minimum? See, this is a starting point for all of us. You know, when we're first baptised, we come to the truth. You know, we aren't up here as great expositors of the word. We have to grow and we develop. Where do we start? And sometimes as a young person, we think, well, what can I do in the ecclesia? Well, here's Barnabas' starting point, a starting point for all of us, young ones, young marrieds. We can just give financially to the truth. It's a wonderful thing. It's a helpful thing. What should be our definition of giving too little? How much do we give? Is it just the leftovers? Should we actually budget to predetermine our level of support? So this is an interesting thing. You know, with young marriage, we normally go through a, a, a session with them. We say, you know, we need to financially budget. And we, well, not that we go the wrong way, but most of us go the wrong way. We sort of think, well, I need the, the house mortgage, the food, the insurance, you know, the car payment, eh, eh, that, 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 and this for the collection. What we should be doing is turning that around the other way and saying, well, this is what I'll give for the collection, and then we work everything else around that. So, you know, that's, that's the way we probably should think about it. Here, of course, in Galatians 6, um, Philippians 4, there's uh, comments about how we can practically support each other. And again, whether that's the Old Testament, Proverbs 19, whoever is generous to the poor, to the poor lends to Yahweh, God acknowledges that, right through to Leviticus, remember, uh, Boaz and Ruth, Ruth was able to glean in the corners because, well, Boaz wasn't pushing his, his harvesting right to the edge. He's a generous-hearted man. And again, there in John, John in a very practical way points out that we need to think about our brothers and sisters and we can help them in, in some little small way. So, leftovers. Now, when I was finance brother, I was amazed sometimes we would take collections and, um, you know, I'd find five-cent coins in there. Now, I know we might have had some widows that put in little widow's mite, and that's fair enough. But there seemed to be an abundance of five-cent coins in there. And often it was on a Wednesday night, and I'd be thinking, you know what? People are coming along for the Wednesday night class. They've got no idea. The collection comes around. They reach in their pocket. Oh, yeah, there's a bit there. Throw it in. That's leftovers, brothers and sisters. <laughs> that's leftovers. truly is. Probably works a little bit better now we've all gone to EFT because we can sort of designate consistently what we're giving. So it's working, you know, quite well. But on a spiritual plane, I wonder if sometimes in our lives, not just financially, but in time aspects, perhaps we're giving the leftovers to God. Like, you know, when we come home, is it like at the end of the day we think, oh, I better, I better pray to the Father, like it's leftovers. And this is the thing Barnabas was not. It wasn't leftovers for him. shouldn't be leftovers for us either. Little poem. Leftovers are such humble things, we wouldn't serve them to a guest and yet we seem to serve them to our Lord who deserves the very best. We give to him our leftover time, stray minutes, well, here and there, 
We give to him our leftover cash, a few coins we can easily spare. We give our energetic youthfulness to the world, to education, to career, to finding a wife. Then sadly for the next year years, do we give God just the remainder, the leftovers of our life? So I think that's the challenge of Barnabas. Now we've learned tonight from the narrative, he's a generous man, he has integrity, he has honesty, sincerity. We need to wind back on ourselves and think, am I just giving leftovers to God? Or am I devoted, is God my first priority in many aspects of my life? So what are the things that we've learnt tonight? When there is disparity within your ecclesia, do we seek out uh, practical solutions to help unify brothers and sisters? This is what we'll find uh, in the life of Barnabas. How do we view fellowship as a set of essential doctrines only or a practical lifestyle seen in sacrifice and the support of others? That's Barnabas. He was nicknamed the son of encouragement. What's your nickname? He had the ability to come alongside people, parakletos, in need and provide exhortation and reassurance. Is that something that you could do? It doesn't have to be a long and lengthy conversation. Our doormen sometimes do it so well. They've just got a smile and a great handshake. <laughs> Are there areas of financial or practical support that you could assist with brothers and sisters? Meals, loans, ecclesial activities and events. Are we just giving God the leftovers? They're the challenges, I guess, as we open up Barnabas' character, as we start to explore the narrative and come to, to love the man. They're the challenges that he leaves us. Are we brothers and sisters that are compassionate, that come along in comfort and provide encouragement? So that's the study for tonight. Let's look forward then in the, in the days ahead to finding more about Barnabas and challenging ourselves. Yes, we're considering this very inspiring example of Barnabas uh, to encourage us and to help us in very practical ways to define what fellowship is all about. And as we learned last evening, of course, Barnabas was a very generous, generous person as far as his finances were concerned. And now we're going to layer that again and show that it wasn't only sort of in the practical support of widows and families that are in need. Now there's an individual brother who, of course, uh, needs to be accepted into the Jerusalem Ecclesia. And Barnabas was the one who really was the catalyst for that whole process. So it shows that extra layer of his definition and understanding of fellowship and by implication for ourselves as well, there are practical lessons. So as we learnt last evening, Barnabas sort of burst on the scene quite quickly with a show of generosity. and He sort of disappeared from the record for a little bit. About three years have gone by. Well, Paul recognises that. He was three years in Damascus and Arabia, so we've got a sort of a, a bit of a timeline there. Um, so now we're reintroduced to the work of Barnabas as Saul comes back to the Jerusalem Ecclesia. We, I guess we need to paint the scene a little bit because we need to understand the awkwardness of that whole situation. Uh, Saul, in his previous state, was a very violent person. We know that he'd wreaked havoc right through Jerusalem, particularly to the brothers and sisters and their families. He'd, he'd broken them down he'd imprisoned members, and he'd voiced his consent to their death. So by his individual fervour, he really had shattered the ecclesia in Jerusalem. And of course, as we know from the narrative, he even set his sights off to far off Damascus and wanted to eradicate brothers and sisters uh, in that city and in that place. So we need to sort of understand that the trauma that Saul had introduced into that whole area. 
uh, very difficult for us to understand. Of course, imagine packing a, a suitcase for the weekend because you're going to head off to Damascus and then return. We actually don't for three years. So for Saul, that was his determination. And of course, he disappears from the scene for, for about three years. And now it comes to a point in, in his life where he's in danger in Damascus himself uh, and really had nowhere to go. Uh, the city was surrounded. He was going to be apprehended, perhaps letters from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, be sent through to the governor there in Damascus, that this man was causing chaos in Damascus and needed to be arrested. And so now for Saul, where, where is he going to go? And he seeks refuge back in the ecclesia in Jerusalem. So on the other side, of course, the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem now are going to be confronted with a man who wrecked havoc in their lives, and now he was coming back to Jerusalem. And perhaps they'd been very comfortable that he'd been a member of the Damascus Ecclesia for a number of years. And they'd sort of heard that he'd been converted and, well, they were comfortable that he's in that Ecclesia way over there. But now, of course, comes a situation where he's uh, going to be reintroduced to the Ecclesia there. It would be very challenging for brothers and sisters who'd been affected by his uh, vigorous determination to forgive and to accept for the consequences that they were still experiencing. And, of course, difficult on Saul's part as well, brother Saul. So, you know, how is this all going to gel together? Well, we notice in verse 26, the narrative says to us that when Saul has come to Jerusalem, he essayed, rather unusual word, I guess, in the King James, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. But the word means, of course, to, to, to attempt, to test, uh, to join is the Greek word kaleo, and it means to cleave or to glue. So we get this understanding that Saul was quite in a desperate situation. He wanted fellowship. He wanted connection with his brothers and sisters. His whole life was being upturned. It's in a mess. And he comes back to the ecclesia in Jerusalem. He knows he's got to reconcile himself, but how is he going to do it? So he tests. He tries to connect himself with the brothers and sisters. But the record goes on to say that they were afraid. Greek word is a phobia from where we get our English word phobia. And, of course, this is built up in the minds of many brothers and sisters that, well, they didn't know if they could trust this man who was coming back to Jerusalem. So he essayed to join with the disciples. And of course it's interesting when we track back through to verse 19, uh, that same reference to the disciples is there but in an entirely different context because it says there he was strengthened and saw certain days with the disciples in, Jer in, in Damascus. So there's two sort of ecclesias, there's disciples there in Damascus, disciples in Jerusalem, and I think it's interesting they use that term because for all of them that, that word disciples means sort of an instruction process. And they were learning about the experiences in life and how they needed to be generous in supporting brothers and sisters who were a little bit on the outside. So, of course, Saul was in a very difficult position. He faced a couple of issues. One was the antagonism of the Sanhedrin, who had obviously sent a message to the garrison there in Damascus that this man needed to be arrested. And then, of course, there was the suspicion of the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Um, after his conversion, I mean, three years has gone by. Three years. And again, in practical terms, when we have these situations in ecclesial life, we generally like to resolve them reasonably quickly, but of course three years have gone by and there's still that stigma attached with Brother Saul. And now comes a wonderful introduction into the narrative. And it's there in verse 27, a very simple phrase, but Barnabas took him. What a lovely phrase that is. And the Greek word there is epilabano, epilabano. And it's an intensive Greek word that means to embrace or to lay hold or to seize possession of, metaphorically to help save one from peril. So here's Barnabas, and I can see him standing at the door of the Jerusalem Ecclesia, and Brother Saul comes in 
uh, quite anxious with a little bit of trepidation and Brother Barnabas just embraces him and welcomes him to the meeting. And that's sort of, to me, the idea of the word. Well, the same word is used when Peter was drowning in Matthew 14, verse 31, by our Lord Jesus Christ who embraced Peter and lifted him out of that situation where Peter was floundering, drowning in the water. Matthew 14, 31 says, Jesus stretched forth his hand, hand and caught him and said, Peter, why do you doubt? So that was an embracing thing from the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord loved Peter and the fervour and the faith of Peter was being demonstrated and then he was struggling in that, in that sort of particular circumstance and Jesus lifted him out. Now, when Jesus lifted him out of the water, it wouldn't be with a finger, it wouldn't just be with a hand, it would have been a complete embrace and he lifts Peter out. So that's the idea of Barnabas here as he welcomes Brother Saul. And similar perhaps to Ananias, I think, here back in verse 17, where it says, Ananias went his way, entered the house, and I love this little phrase, putting his hands on him. Can you imagine in the blackness uh, of life's experiences that everything is turned upside down and you're in a deep and a dark place and you don't know where you're going to go and you feel some hands on your shoulder? Brother Saul, so comforting. And it's replicated now, of course, in Barnabas's action. So, you know, we can imagine how comforting that would have been for, for Brother Saul felt totally isolated, totally rejected. Um, perhaps people in the ecclesia were muttering about, well, we're not sure if he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. I mean, there would have been all these rumours going about uh, Saul. And imagine if he found the pressure just so difficult that he just gave up on everything and maybe in resistance and bitterness reversed his decision, left the truth and continued to persecute the ecclesias. Uh, and that's a situation that happens sometimes. We know that, you know, sadly there are brothers and sisters that have been disfellowshipped for, for behaviour or other issues and they seem to have a renewed vengeance on Christadelphia. We have websites, you know, ex-Christadelphian websites where this bitterness just outpours. So it is a possibility that Saul could have reversed back from where he was. But how thankful we are that Brother Barnabas embraced Saul and introduced him into the ecclesia. There could have been amazing, uh, terrible repercussions. In fact, the whole ecclesial world could have broken up because... Brother Saul had been in the ecclesia in Damascus for three years. They were comfortable. They were okay with him. And you can imagine the ecclesia in Damascus now getting quite anxious and angry that the ecclesia in Jerusalem hadn't accepted Brother Saul. And now there's a whole process of inter-ecclesial fellowships that fragments and breaks up. So, you know, these scenarios are quite possible. We've seen them happen in our own community. So this son of consolation, this great encourager, that's the meaning of his name as we learn, uh, embraces Saul. Now, what's interesting is we call him the encourager, but you know what? In the narrative so far, we haven't heard a word from Barnabas. There would have been obviously uh, considerable discussions with Brother Saul, but Barnabas has no actual statements recorded uh, at all. You know, he wasn't, we don't hear in the narrative that he's saying, well, Peter, you know, you're doing really well, and uh, John, it's good to see you cooperating with Peter. You know, that's not in the narrative. It's sort of silent. So what it's telling us here is Barnabas was not just a man of words. You know, sometimes in our lives we, we like to comfort brothers and sisters and all we do is well, we verbalise that and that's about all we ever do. It's just words, vaporous words we might say. But Barnabas was actually a man of action. There's no particular statement here, but the consequence in his action is certainly recorded. So he stood up and he declared, says the record in verse 27, to the apostles... Uh, how that Paul, or Saul, had seen the Lord in the way, he'd spoken to him, and he preached boldly in Damascus. Now, that takes a lot of courage, because Barnabas wasn't on the level of an apostle. 
there were 12, 12 significant men in the ecclesia there that were giving direction to you know, 5,000 converts. Barnabas wasn't at that, that level of status, but he had the courage to embrace and step forward with Brother Saul and introduce him to the apostles and to the ecclesia. So it takes courage, it takes perception, and it illustrates to us, I think, the very generous understanding that Barnabas had about forgiveness. We don't know the confession and the conversation that Saul had with Barnabas, but it's obviously there because Barnabas knew all about it, and that's the, th that's the aspect that he conversed with the apostles. So I think, you know, as we come before the table of the Lord, and there's the illustration of immense forgiveness here for us that we need, I think we need to challenge ourselves. Do we have the same generosity of forgiveness when it comes to repairing and restoring and encouraging brothers and sisters that are struggling or who perhaps have a problematic past? Uh, do we discard people? You know, we all live busy lives. We've got families. We've got things that we need to attend to. Are we so busy with our own lives and focused on all the arrangements that we have in place that there are brothers and sisters that are falling aside or who are perhaps lonely in the ecclesia that, well, we don't have time for that? And if we are aware of that, do we, like Barnabas, try to nurture and advance these brothers and sisters so that they can reach their full potential? It requires courage, but also the gentleness of a Barnabas. He wasn't a rough brother. And this becomes one of the, the core characteristic hallmarks of this beautiful brother that was known for his encouragement, but not only in words, only in a very practical way, he was able to embrace brothers and sisters, nurture them, and raise them up. So Barnabas sought out Saul and introduced him to the ecclesia. You know, in our own ecclesia, I've got the example in mind when we were running a, a series of seminars and uh, we had a brother in our ecclesia that actually invited some of the uh, young men that had left the truth and gone off on their own ways, he invited them around to a barbecue. <laughs> That's all he really did. Uh, but that was, a, to me, it was an amazing gesture that we're running a seminar and he was concerned with some of the Young brethren that drifted out, well, they probably weren't even brethren, they weren't baptised, they were young men uh, who'd grown up through the Sunday school and then made their own way in life. He actually rang them and said, come around for a barbecue, we want to have a chat because, you know, we've got some seminars starting up, you might be interested in that. So it's sometimes going to be just a simple thing like that. So there's that beautiful expression, Barnabas took him. Uh, it's prefaced, of course, uh, by that word, but. Um, it's, it's repeated in verse 26. Saul is saved to join himself to the disciples, but, it's like a, a shut-out word, isn't it? But they were afraid of him. Then again in verse 27, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he'd seen the Lord in the way and spoken about those things to Barnabas. So it almost illustrates to us that it appears that Barnabas is the only one. Everybody was standing back, but it took a Barnabas to stand forward. Uh, Weymouth says, they believed not... However, Barnabas came to his assistance. So Barnabas steps into that void, into that vacuum, and he takes Saul, he brings him in, and he, he declares, Barnabas declares on the behalf of Saul uh, what had been happening in Saul's life. So there'd been, obviously, a deep discussion. And in fact, the narrative points that way because it says that Barnabas told the apostles, the ecclesia, how that Saul had seen the Lord, all those events, how he'd spoken to him, and the the historical events that happened after that, the preaching campaigns of Brother Saul. And as well, when we link across, we won't go to Galatians, but Galatians chapter 1, 
uh, gives a bit of a, a precursor to the events that were happening. And Paul makes a particular point in that epistle when he's writing to the Galatians. He says, I didn't see anyone that was prominent in the ecclesia when I came back to Jerusalem apart from Peter and James, the only two men that he saw. I saw Peter and James, but no one else. And the reason why he made uh, and had discussions with Peter and James is because, of course, those two brethren preeminently had difficulties in accepting Christ as the Messiah. So, of course, you know, Peter, uh, in the denial of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, I don't know the man, and the, the way that Peter felt, the sorrow uh, after he had denied the Lord Jesus Christ, that was something that Paul saw could attach to. And also, you know, James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, who grew up with Christ and thought, well, is he supposed to be the Messiah? I don't think so. And now those men that come into the ecclesia were foundation members, but they had a history that Saul wanted to have a discussion and a connection with because he had the same problem. So you know, it's a wonderful thing for brothers and sisters to go through sometimes tough times in our life. And we wonder, why am I going through this tough time? Uh, why is my faith being challenged? Or why are these circumstances coming upon me? It's so, brothers and sisters, we can connect to people who might be struggling with the same issues. You can become an encourager by the tough times that you've gone through. And, of course, there's Saul who, who connected to these brethren. So James tells us that we need to confess our faults one to another and pray for one another so that we can be healed. So what's this whole process all about? We're going to talk about how the process of forgiveness works. So confession, first of all, what, what does that mean? Saul would have obviously confessed to Barnabas and to the ecclesia. What a confession that would be. So the first thing we need to do is accept the gravity of our position, our sin. You know, it's not something we just brush off lightly. We accept that we've done some damage to people. We acknowledge as well that we need the help of others to restore and rebuild. We need to lean on other people. We can't do this independently. We're so thankful for our Lord Jesus Christ. We, we lean upon him this morning because we're not going to achieve the kingdom in any other way. We also accept accountability to the ecclesia. And that's what Saul and Barnabas are doing here. Barnabas didn't shuffle him off to somewhere else. He said to Saul, you know what? We need to confess, we need to rebuild, we need to repair, and you need to be accountable to the people that you've damaged. And as well as that, you know, we suffer pain when we go through that process of disfellowship. It's, it's good for us. It, it teaches us accountability and the need for us to restore and rebuild. So I guess for ourselves we need to think about that. Could, could we become the encourager for a brother or sister who is struggling here in this meeting? who may be here physically but are struggling with their faith or family life or employment, educate, all of these things in the swirl of life circumstances. Sometimes we find ourselves floundering and a brother and sister can be such a relief to us. Are we willing to get involved? I think that's probably one of the big questions. See, Bar I, I love Barnabas because he got himself involved in this situation. For most of us, we, we sort of step back and say, well, I hope the AB handled that because, you know, they need to do something. <laughs> and that's not enough. We're here as a community, we're here as a family, we're here to emulate the Barnabas spirit of generosity on many levels, and one of them is really looking after our brothers and sisters and finding out how they're doing. So we have to create that environment of openness and conversation with each other. That's who we have to become, and we can all do that. You know, there might be certain things in the ecclesia that we can't do or we feel awkward about, but we can all be encouragers and, and give comfort and support. We can mentor one another as we walk the pathway to the kingdom together. And I, I often wonder, you know, there's that beautiful chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, a definition of love. And I wonder, I like to think that when Paul was penning that, on the backdrop of all that was Barnabas. You know, it wasn't just a, a theorization on what love is all about, but he had people in his life that when he's penning that, 
when he's penning this statement, love thinks no evil, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, he's thinking of Barnabas because that for him was the true defin def definition of love. Well, what was the outcome? Well, we notice, of course, that in verse 30, we, we sort of read the statement here that he came into Jerusalem uh, and the next minute they seem to be bundling Saul off to Caesarea and wherever after that. Verse 30 says, When the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Uh, now, now, I've read this wrongly, of course, on many occasions. And previously, uh, I read this sort of narrative because it seemed to me the Ecclesia couldn't handle the situation so they bundled Saul off to Tarsus because he was a problem. He's a hot potato that the Ecclesia didn't want to, to be able to handle. And I guess in some ways, there's a, dis there's a disappointment with the Ecclesia here in Adelaide that we had that option. You know, in some places, there's only one Ecclesia, so you have to resolve it, and that's the right process. Well, here, of course, if you don't fix up problems, you just go down the road to another Ecclesia, which is not helpful. But that's not actually the case here. The Ecclesia actually were moving to protect Paul from external death threats. So when we read verse 29 and 30, it says, Saul spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he disputed with the Grecians, and they were going to slay They were going to slay him. And I love this statement. You see the word brethren? Which when the brethren knew, they brought him to Caesarea. So Saul wasn't a hot potato that were just pushing off because the Ecclesia couldn't you know, help or support him. It was a protective measure because Saul was just so enthused about the truth. He was preaching it everywhere. They could see in the man that he was fully converted. And so as a protective element, they said, Saul, um, there's some death threats. We need to give you refuge. Uh, and, of course, they sent him back to his, his hometown. And it wasn't a fear. Well, verse 31 says, Then had the Ecclesias rest through all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and were edified. And doesn't say walking in the fear of Paul. It says walking in the fear of Yahweh and were, were comforted. So they were, they were comforted because uh, Saul was now protected from those death threats that were coming, of course, by the Sanhedrin because he would have been a particularly targeted man. So they protected him from harm. And of course, there's this whole beautiful process of, of restoration. You notice they sent him to Caesarea. Well, who was at Caesarea? Well, when we go back to chapter, we won't do it, but you might make a note, chapter 8 and verse 40. Uh, Philip, the evangelist, was there, and Philip's best buddy, best friend, was Stephen, who Saul gave his voice to put to death Stephen. So Saul now goes back to the care of the brothers and sisters in Caesarea before he continues to Tarsus. It's Philip the evangelist who is there with his daughters. And Philip was associated, they were stewards together with Stephen that Saul initially was involved in putting to death. So you can, behind the scenes here, there's this amazing and beautiful process of restoration and rebuilding. Well, there's an additional detail. I won't go to this passage in Acts 22, verse 17 and 21. Saul repeats this the whole narrative of what happened. But there was a statement, there was a vision, there was an instruction that came from Christ himself. There in Acts 22 it says, the direction of Christ to Saul, make haste and get out of Jerusalem, depart from here, I'm going to send you to preach the Gentiles. So there's this statement that Saul now should go and preach to the Gentiles. So the directive of the Ecclesia was to follow the instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not doing it because they, he was a hot potato and they couldn't deal with it. They're following through the instructions of Christ that Saul should go and preach to the Gentiles and they send him off to Tarsus for the next 10 years. So we know that Saul was in the area of Tarsus for another 10 years because there's a blank spot in the chronology of, of Paul, Saul's life. 
In Galatians 2 and verse 1, he talks about a 14-year period before he went back to Jerusalem. So three years in Arabia, of course, we add that on, uh, plus 10, and he's a year in Antioch, 14 years. So 10 years later, Barnabas goes and searches out for Saul to bring him on board to help him with the reconstruction or the rebuilding or, or the development of the Gentile ecclesia in Antioch. Well, verse 31 says the ecclesia had rest, and there's two reasons for that. If you look historically, Josephus says there was a Roman invasion, so there was a distraction. Of course, everyone was worried about that. And secondly, the ecclesia had done, or the ecclesia was in rest because Barnabas had done a massive re reconstruction or reconciliation with Saul. So these you know, little uh, incidents that, that happened and, and were difficult for the ecclesia to work through had now been resolved by the generous spirit of Barnabas who made reconciliation with Saul. And of course, the brethren now caring for Saul um, helped him through to the pathway to Tarsus to preach to the Gentiles. So we need to think, brothers and sisters, about this whole process of forgiveness that we see Barnabas, Barnabas initiating and carrying through. And I want to talk about four aspects of forgiveness that we need to take on board for ourselves when we look at this beautiful spirit of Barnabas. Four aspects. First one, become a welcoming brother or sister. All right, this, this is our responsibility as individual brothers and sisters to do that. Barnabas shows us that. It wasn't the ecclesia that embraced Saul. It was by the initiation and the welcoming spirit of Barnabas that Saul was able to find resolution. So we need to become welcoming brothers and sisters, especially when we have new members. I mean, it's, it's such a wonderful experience uh, when we have a new member and we can encourage and support them, but also when we have visitors uh, and other people that attach themselves to our ecclesia. Romans 15, 7 says, Receive ye one another as Christ has received us to the glory of God. So there's almost a correlation between the Barnabas spirit and his embracing and his receiving of Saul. And this is the command that echoes down to us as well. We have to be embracing. When a brother or sister is refellowshipped, we need to rebuild. You know, we don't plant them at the back of the hall and say, we'll sit there for another you know, year or two and then we'll, we'll see how things go. It's, we want to embrace them. And I do remember talking to a brother in America who said, we actually have, we deliver the right hand of fellowship when we announce the restoration of a brother or sister to our ecclesia. I thought that was a quite amazing practical way of giving reassurance to someone who's done some damage to their own lives or the lives of other brothers and sisters of the ecclesia to restore them to a rightful position. A right hand of fellowship is given. We welcome you back into fellowship. <laughs> so we need to be those sort of welcoming uh, brothers and sisters for those that have been disfellowshipped and we bring them back. It's a new beginning for them. It's a new start for them and we have to reinforce that aspect. And if you've travelled overseas, of course, you'd be recipients of incredible gestures of welcomeness. When you travel the, the world, it's just an amazing thing that wherever you go, there are brothers and sisters that will embrace and welcome you into their homes. And again, I remember some amazing stories of, of um, visiting, well, there were interested friends who were newly baptised, and the brother dropped us off at the front of their house and said, uh, these brothers and sisters have just been newly baptised. They're six months into the truth, but they want to have lunch with you. And I remember knocking on the door, and the door opens wide, and the brothers say, Brother Steve, Sister Beth, welcome. We've been waiting so long to catch up with you. We want to do the readings before we, we have lunch. Come on in. You know, it's just, wow, that is amazing. Never seen them in our lives, but we felt like, you know, best friends then and there. It was such a wonderful experience. So we need to be welcoming people because that's who Barnabas was. Second point is we need to be protective to the vulnerable. 
you know, we, we imagine that Saul, with all his confidence and his determination, he was an individual that was strong, he had a massive backbone. But you know what? He was a vulnerable person at one stage in life. He lost his confidence. He needed restoration and rebuilding. And Barnabas became the protective person that helped him through that situation. There were others in the ecclesia that were suspicious about this brother Saul. We're not quite sure if he's genuine. Well, Colossians 3 verse 13 says, Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. And if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so do you. There's the Barnabas spirit. You know, so historically, brothers and sisters, whatever little level of bitterness we've perhaps allowed to grow in our life, we need to let that go. We need to turn the page because that's the spirit of Christ. That's why we're here this morning. That's why we love coming here this morning because it's a relief to us in our own life to turn a page and to know that forgiveness is absolute. Times in our lives, for all of us, I think that we may be lonely, may be vulnerable, maybe because of a bad decision we've made in life or a statement that we've made to another brother or sister. And we need to show friendship to, to each other and to be protective of each other uh, as the ecclesia there was. And Barnabas really was putting his reputation on the line. It was quite a courageous thing uh, to help Brother Saul. He's, he was putting his own reputation on the line and sometimes we have to do that. Um, third thing is be patient. And we see this in the life of Saul. Ten years later, Barnabas is going to go and get Brother Saul to help uh, build the Ecclesia in Antioch. We have to be patient with one another. I don't think we are today because we live in a world of SMSs and in amazing emails that just fly all over the place without too much thought. So we have to wind back and be patient. We, we can't expect radical change to happen in each other overnight. It takes rebuilding, it takes time. And as I say, 10 years, there was a, a quiet period in Saul's life as he rebuilt himself. We talk about Moses, of course, going into the desert for 40 years. Well, it wasn't much different for Saul. He had to have that same confidence rebuilding process. Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, verse 24 and 25, he says, the servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, and patiently enduring and correcting with gentleness. I see Barnabas as a very patient man, helping to correct very gently people that sort of were finding the way uh, difficult. And the fourth and last, last point is, we need to see the potential in one another, not the problems. And Barnabas, again, did that in such an amazing way. He didn't see the problems that were swirling around the life of Saul. He saw the potential in this man as he went out and preached with great enthusiasm and energy, massive potential there, and Barnabas was going to nurture that. He saw the potential in Saul, not the problems. And again, this is something that we all struggle with because we can see the problems in everybody else, not so well in ourselves. So we need to have the vision. When we see a young person getting baptised, you know, we don't sort of in the back of our mind think, well, I hope that goes okay because I really know they're not where I would have thought they should be. We've got to see the potential that we can nurture these young ones into becoming, you know, eventually arranging brethren of our ecclesias. So that takes, again, a little bit of foresight. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 3, he says, we thank God always for you, brothers, as, is, as it is meet, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you toward each other abounds. See, when Paul saw the potential in the Ecclesia of Thessalonica, he didn't write about all the problems that they had. He said, we make mention of you because we hear that your love abounds. It's a very positive aspect that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ecclesia in Thessalonica about. So what we've seen this morning is, from our first study, is Barnabas now moves 
from being a generous person as far as money and possessions and assets is concerned in a practical way. We've seen him move from that now to be generous with his compassion. So this is a layer that we'll build on the character of Barnabas as we go through these studies. So questions for us as we think about the emblems now and as we prepare our minds to receive very graciously the forgiveness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are there times when you see brothers and sisters or young people or visitors standing alone at the meeting? Do you detach yourself from your conversation and make an effort to encourage and involve them? You know, in ecclesial life, we like to talk to our family, to the people that we want to catch up on, but are there people that you notice who are standing alone? Uh, they may be struggling with something, or they may just like a, a hello and, and a welcome. So this is something that, this is the Barnabas spirit coming through. Up to now, there's no recorded statements by Barnabas. Is our encouragement, I mean, now there's another level, is our encouragement in words only? Or do we involve ourselves practically in people's lives? There are people that we need to be able to support. Of course, we've talked about in this current situation of isolation. You know, as sisters in our ecclesia, I know have been buzzing around, visiting these uh, ones in isolation and providing meals. It's a simple, it's a little thing, but it's a gesture of attachment and concern and thoughtfulness. Uh, Barnabas listened to Saul's story in verse 27 and became aware of his background. Have we taken the time to have those conversations with brothers and sisters? Again, I'm going to say in our own ecclesia, I can remember a brother standing up and giving his life story as an introduction to how he came to the truth. And I'd been in the ecclesia for, I don't know, five or ten years. Did not know that background. And it was impressive. He had His, his wife disconnected and, and walked away from him because he accepted the truth. I never really knew that. So there are lots of conversations that we need to have with one another about where we've been, what we're doing, and, and what's happening in our background. And finally, there are members in our ecclesias who've had a difficult past. Do we really forgive them or are we tinged with some ongoing suspicion that, well, you know, maybe this will happen or I'm not quite sure where they sit? <laughs> we need to be able to divest ourselves of that and just work with the good. Just see the positive. See the opportunities to build and restore one another. This is the Barnabas spirit. So we now look to a man, of course, who really is superior from Barnabas in every single way. A man who has lifted us up, a man who has embraced us. And despite our past, or maybe our present brothers and sisters that we're struggling with, despite the negative effect that we have on others sometimes with the things that we do or say, there's an all-consuming essence of forgiveness emanating from his example and from the emblems here upon the table. Our Lord Jesus Christ is generous with his forgiveness. And the Apostle Paul wrote this a little bit later, he says, the life that I now live, I live by my faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. The Apostle Paul never ever forgot that. It was sort of echoed in the, in the life and the gesture of Barnabas as a sort of a, a replication of the Lord Jesus Christ. But above and beyond that, Paul was just so relieved that all the damage he'd caused in his life to brothers and sisters and his ecclesia, that above and beyond that, Jesus Christ embraced him and gave him absolute forgiveness. We're here this morning to celebrate that in our own lives. May we commit to following then in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus Christ and have the fortitude and the maturity to develop within ourselves the Barnabas spirit and become brothers and sisters of encouragement and consolation. Thanks, brothers and sisters, be to God for his unspeakable gift.
first study, of course, was the uh, financial support that Barnabas enabled his ecclesia with, looking after the widows and those that were in need. Uh, we saw his introduction and his support of Saul into the Jerusalem Ecclesia and the work that he did in the background there of reintroducing Saul and helping him into that ecclesial fellowship zone. Uh, and now tonight we want to have a look at another level and another layer. We want to see this, a good man, the importance of innovation. And this particular study will focus on the man who was sent to now blend together and merge together and bridge, as it were, two different ecclesias and two different cultures. So, of course, the Jerusalem Ecclesia had grown and had developed uh, through the ministration of the apostles and was preeminently of, of a Jewish culture. Uh, and the disciples had been spread abroad because of the persecution of Stephen, and some of them went up, as we read in the record, to Antioch. And now there's the emergence of a Gentile Ecclesia in a very different culture. And who's the man they're going to send to bridge that gap? Well, it's actually going to be Barnabas because he has the specific qualifications and the calibre and the ability to reconcile, to rebuild and to join together two, uh, a little, two vastly different in some way ecclesial groups. So for Barnabas that was again uh, this wonderful spirit that we see in this activity in Acts chapter 11. So we read tonight about the, uh, the background to this particular uh, development there in verse 19. Verse 19 talks about the scattering of the disciples because of the persecution that arose because of Stephen. But you'll notice particularly Luke in his narrative emphasises this aspect about the Jews only. See at the end of verse 19, it says, preaching the word to none but the Jews only. Now there's a, there's a couple of little interesting words in verse 19 and verse 20 which relate to Barnabas, and that's the word Cyprus. I don't know if you noticed that, but again... In verse 19, it talks about Cyprus and verse 20, and some of them were men of Cyprus. You know, you think, well, why would that be important? I mean, Cyprus wasn't big as far as the Roman Empire was concerned. But, of course, there is that attachment to the whole narrative of what Barnabas was involved in. That was the homeland, or at least Barnabas had some extensive assets there in Cyprus. So there's a linkage already being developed in the narrative to Barnabas. Now, we'll notice that Luke introduces uh, the concept of preaching to the Gentiles as, as a bit of a contrast to verse 19, because verse 20 says, Some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, northern Africa, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians. Now, you know, we would normally imagine the Grecians, and, and rightly so, to be the Hellenistic Jews, who spoke Greek, of course, and were generally fairly more liberal as far as their outlook on life is concerned, in contrast to the Jewish culture, which is very conservative. You know, they'd grown up through a background of the law of Moses, so there were rituals and, and, and rigorous, rigorousness about the law. And the Hellenistic Jews were a li little bit more um, liberal with that. But Luke is not really talking about Hellenistic Jews. He's talking about Gentiles here, because when you wind back to the end of verse 18, you'll notice there's this introduction. Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. So what Luke is building in his narrative is a contrast, Jew and Gentile. And the, the narrative uh, should also state in verse 20, just at the end of verse 20, it says, they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians. The literal narrative of the Greek is spake also. So if you look up the diaglot, the diaglot inserts the word spake also as a point of emphasis. So it wasn't just to the Jews, they also spake to an extended group of people, the Gentiles, who previously, of course, were not really connected with the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in a major way. So it's not so much... Uh, Hellenistic Jews we're talking about, but Gentiles. Connection, as we've said, the end of verse 18. And the same idea, of course, is in Romans 1, verse six, 16, isn't it? Uh, it talks about the power of God is salvation to Jew and to Greek. 
Well, the contrast is not Jew and Greek. The contrast is Jew and Gentile there in Romans 1.16, which is the same narrative here that, that Luke is developing in his uh, writing here in Acts chapter 11. So what, what the, uh, Luke is telling us is that there was a growing ecclesia of not Greeks, but Gentiles that was developing in the Antioch area because of the scattering of the disciples. And the gospel was now being extended beyond the borders of the Jewish nation, as it were, itself. So they're going to send Barnabas up there to do some nurturing, really, of the ecclesia there. Um, and sometimes behind the scenes we just forget what sort of a journey that would be. You know, oh, we went to Antioch. Well, that's interesting. Well, no, it's actually quite a big journey. So here's down in Jerusalem where Barnabas was. He's got to go all the way up here to Antioch in Syria. 480 kilometres, I'm guessing a journey of a couple of weeks. So it wasn't as though it was just round, you know, down the road and round the corner. It was quite an extensive journey. And you'll notice that uh, as far as Antioch in Syria was concerned, the historians tell us it's the third largest city in the Roman Empire. That's quite an astounding fact, really. Rome and Alexandria were the big cities. Uh, Antioch had a population of around about half a million people. So, you know, it's not a little country village. It's quite a large cosmopolitan area. And Nicholas, who was the first proselyte, was a Gentile himself. Remember back in the early chapters of Acts when there were uh, seven brethren appointed, it talks about Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. So in some ways, we always say Cornelius was the first Gentile, but actually he's preceded by Nicholas, who was a Gentile from Antioch. So uh, that's back in Acts chapter 6 and verse 5. But again, in the narrative, quite interestingly, in verse 22, it says that the tidings came back to, verse 22, uh, to the ears of the ecclesia at Jerusalem. Now, I like how Luke puts the next phrase. And they sent forth Barnabas that he should go, and here it comes, as far as Antioch. As far as Antioch. So there were some who rejoiced at the development of this ecclesia in Antioch, and Barnabas was selected and instructed to go as far as Antioch. Well, you know, that wasn't as far as Rome, the edge of the, empire, uh, the Roman Empire, but within that phrase is the concept that this was uncharted territory as far as uh, the ecclesia was concerned. The gospel now has been projected way out as far as Antioch. Of course, Saul, the Apostle Paul, is going to take it much further than that. But initially, there's a development of another ecclesia as far as Antioch, which is quite astounding. So we might say that was the, uh, the fringe area of the then-known geographical ecclesial world. So Barnabas was the one that was selected. And I think we need just to wind back a little bit and think, why Barnabas? There were a lot of qualified brethren, including perhaps one of the apostles, who could have made this significant journey to make an attachment to the Antioch Ecclesia and, and to bring them into the, the circle and the realm of the Jewish central ecclesia, we might say. But it wasn't one of the apostles, and there were other brethren, I'm sure, but it was Barnabas who was selected because of his spirit of reconciliation and rebuilding. And I think as well, remember on our first evening there was that little point of narrative, he was a Levite? Um, because, of course, the Jewish people were very protective of their culture and their background and their history. And so now we've got an ecclesia positioning itself out in Antioch, which perhaps didn't have that history or that background. Who should they send? They wanted to send someone that was balanced. Barnabas had a background in the law of Moses because he's a Levite. So he's a good, solid brother to send out to this ecclesia, to give them encouragement and to develop them as well. And he had a proven track record that the right qualifications were not only in place, but also he's the right man for the right job because he was an encourager. So I think we need to divest ourselves. I think I've done the same thing. That I painted the Antioch Ecclesia as in competition to the Jerusalem Ecclesia. Not at all. 
We'll see this unfold and unpack a little bit, but the Jerusalem Ecclesia wanted to encourage and to develop the progression of the truth beyond even the borders of Antioch. So they selected Barnabas. So point one, he was exclusively chosen for many brethren. He wasn't the only one. They didn't look around and say, well, we've got no one to send, let's just send Barnabas. They would have had a number of choices. Remember, 3,000, 5,000 members. Secondly, he had a reputation for careful discernment and integrity. He was a man of integrity, transparency and honesty. Saw that in our first study. He had the respect of the apostles, the elders and the ecclesia. They weren't just going to send anyone out there. They wanted someone they could trust. As I've already said, we've got, he was a Levite. He had a deep knowledge of the law of Moses. So this was an ecclesia that really had grown up without that background and there needed to be some sort of counterbalance to blend the ecclesias together. They couldn't just do their own thing. So he's got to blend these ecclesias together. He was from Cyprus and we've already emphasised there in verse 19 and 20, uh, the brethren that started the work there were from Cyprus, fellow countrymen. He'd integrate quite well uh, with that background. Uh, and th the main point was he was the encourager, so there, was, there would be a positive edge to his survey. And I've just got the note there, he wasn't chosen to investigate, he was chosen to encourage. And we'll see that unfold particularly uh, in the, the next verse. But I just want to cross over quickly to uh, Ignatius of Antioch. So Ignatius was a brother in this particular area. So he didn't write any uh, elements as far as the canon of scripture is concerned, but there are historical documents from Ignatius. So he lived AD 35 to 108. He authorised seven letters. Uh, he wanted to counteract the teaching of two groups, the Judaizers and the Docetists. So that was uh, his historical uh, writings. We know he was a friend of Polycarp as well, who was possibly a student of the Apostle John, so there was those connections. And again, historically, we can, we can look at his life. Uh, he was sentenced to death by the Emperor Trajan. He wrote seven letters. Uh, he refers to the Ecclesia, quite interestingly, as whole or universal. So he comes from Antioch, and whenever he writes, he talks about the universality or the unity of the Ecclesia. So obviously that was a, a thing that was important to him. Uh, he emphasised the responsibility of arranging brethren in these letters, uh, and he wrote about fears for ecclesial unity, and there was other elements that he wrote as well, and he quotes quite extensively from some of the New Testament books. So, you know, it's, it's not someone that we're familiar with that's a character in the Bible, but historically he came from that area of Antioch, he wrote significantly about uh, the background that we're talking about this evening. So Barnabas is going up there, he's a Levite, he's grounded in the law. What does he uncover in the ecclesia at Antioch? So we come to verse 23, it says, when he came, he saw the grace of God and he was glad. So this is the you know, first point that we note, this is the report, I guess we can say, of Barnabas about the Antioch Ecclesia. He saw the evidence of the grace of God and he was glad. That's his first response. It wasn't that, well, I came up here and they're a very liberal ecclesia and they discarded the law of Moses. This ecclesia now begins to embrace, as it were, the spirit of Barnabas. There's no envy, there's no jealousy, there's no resentment on the part of Barnabas for the rapid expansion at Antioch. It was a growing, abounding, mushrooming ecclesia and he doesn't say, well, you know, we need to put the cap on this. Let's get back to the law of Moses. Now he comes there and he observes the grace of God. So from a Levitical, priest, from a Levitical point of view, of course, um, there's that beautiful contrast beyond the law to the grace. And I wonder sometimes in the conversation that he had with the Apostle Paul, because when we, we read through the New Testament writings of the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul underlines, doesn't he, uh, with a lot of emphasis, this whole overarching principle of the grace of God. And Paul came from a background brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, Pharisee of the Pharisee, loved the law, 
And he's able to do a complete U-turn, a flip-flop. And I wonder whether because of some of these conversations with Barnabas, Paul too came to appreciate the grace of God. So that's the first observation of Barnabas when he comes to Antioch. And we'll notice as well in verse 23, not only does he observe the grace of God and he was glad because of that, but then he paracletio them. And that's, again, remember the nickname of Barnabas? The son of consolation, son of paracletos, the son of exhortation. Here he is, and this is why the elders sent him into this area, to encourage the growth and the development and the expansion of the brothers and sisters in Christ at Antioch. So he paracleoed them again. He called them to his side and he gave them encouragement. He is a man who is just skilled in positivity. And he helped them to focus beyond what we sometimes see in people's conversion, that flash of emotion when they suddenly come in and they think, well, the truth is wonderful, and there's that flash of emotion, they're all excited, and then that you know, sort of spirals downward pretty quickly over the years, and then they drift away from the truth. So Barnabas wanted to make sure they were well and truly grounded in the truth, and he gives that positive edge that would have encouraged them. And so that's what we read, of course. What did he exhort them about? That would, with purpose of heart, they would cleave, it's a relational term, cleave to the Lord. So that's the term, of course, that's used back in Genesis 2, verse 24, between Adam and Eve, isn't it? A relational word. Um, it wasn't all about just the doctrine, the law of Moses, those foundation principles. It was about an emotional and an intellectual thing as far as an attachment to the truth was concerned. A cleaving, a cleaving to the Lord. So that was to be developed in a relational style. And so Barnabas, of course, came and he exhorted them. And, of course, this is something that we do for ourselves. We need that exhortation, don't we, brothers and sisters? The last couple of years have been quite unsettling for all of us, uh, whether it's just locally or whether on a global scale. We see the unsettlement of people all over the place, their rebellious attitude, and that sort of influence that bleeds into the ecclesia as well, into our, into our heart and soul a little bit. We want to be encouraged in the things of God. That's why we have a, a Sunday morning exhortation, so we can lift ourselves up again. Well, there's Barnabas in Antioch doing that. And, of course, he's just reinforcing these particular principles uh, as well. So here on, the, on mission work, uh, they went about confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we, through much tribulation, should enter into the kingdom of God. So there were Paul and Barnabas on that particular occasion. Paul had been stoned and they get back up and they exhort brothers and sisters to continue in the faith. So a very practical exhortation. Again, in Thessalonians there, we exhort you by the Lord Jesus Christ you ought to walk and please God and abound in that. And again, uh, quite wonderfully in Hebrews, not to forsake the assembly of ourselves, but exhorting one another. And we see that in a practical way, simply by our attendance here. Our older brothers and sisters, their consistency in attendance becomes an exhortation. So that's what uh, Barnabas is doing there. So what's the, the, the focal point of his exhortation? Well, at the end of verse 23, he says that with purpose of heart, so, you know, Purpose of heart doesn't mean half-hearted. And perhaps sometimes when we've been a long time in the truth and, you know, we've had a thousand special efforts and we've listened to 5,000 talks and, you know, sort of the edge comes off a little bit and we're not as excited as we used to be. So we can't be half-hearted, really, is what Barnabas is saying. In the truth, our heart has to be prioritised to love the things of God. It has to be wholehearted. This is his exhortation. So it's not just a, a flash of enthusiasm, which I can imagine that, and early ecclesias have that, don't they? They begin building their ecclesia and joining together and there's all that excitement. He doesn't want to see that fade at all. So he says we need to prioritise in life our heart. 
So we can have a heavy heart in the truth, we can be half-hearted in the truth. James talks about having a double heart. So these are all elements. We've got to compress that in and make sure our heart is focused and prioritised on where we want to be and what we want to do in life. And of course, Daniel is a man who is commended for his purpose of heart from a teenager. And again, it's just a wonderful thing to see our young people deciding to commit their lives to Christ and are being baptised and they're prioritising their life to dedicate it to, to Christ. So here's Daniel 1 verse 8. He purposed in his heart, of course, same idea. Here in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, uh, you need to purpose and give definition to what you want to give in the truth. It's not just like we randomly wander in here you know, on a Wednesday and a Sunday. It's like we determine that we're going to be here, first priority. It's what Barnabas was exhorting them about. And again, here in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32, the multitude that believe were of one heart and soul. So they were united in their development, their maturity, their progression of the truth. We need to think about ourselves. How are we going? Being 10, 20, 30, 40 years in the truth? Still wholehearted about the truth? Well, here in Colossians, Paul says not just outwardly, just, you know, well, we need to get our name on the roll or we want brothers and sisters to see that we're still here. He says in singleness of heart, fearing God. And finally here uh, in Chronicles, Old Testament reference, uh, these were the men that assembled to David and they weren't divisive. They weren't saying, well, we're not sure if Saul's going to you know, continue, uh, so maybe we'll, we'll sort of go both ways. They were not of a double heart. They gave themselves totally to the service of, of David. So that's the encouragement that, that Barnabas distributed to the brothers and sisters there up in Antioch. And you'll notice uh, there's an addition of the, the character of Barnabas in verse 24. This is a very beautiful thing. This is put into the narrative by Dr. Luke. Um, here's a little snapshot. We don't have photos, but there's a little snapshot of Barnabas. He was a good man, three, three qualities really. He was a good man, he was full of the Holy Spirit, and he's a man of faith. So, you know, they're pretty simple talents, really, isn't it? Good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and faithful. It doesn't say that he had distinguishing and unique uh, abilities and, and characteristics that really qualified him for an exceptional job. It doesn't say that at all. He's a good man, he's full of energy and enthusiasm, and he's faithful. And that can be us. We can be that sort of person, can't we, brothers and sisters? You know, we, we may not have extensive university degrees, might not have letters after our name, we might not work in significant places in this world, but we can be good people, we can be enthusiastic and love the truth, and we can have consistency in faith. It's, that's not hard to do, and Barnabas encourages us to do that. Luke 6 and verse 45 says, A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth that which is, is good. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. He's a good man. He's got a good heart. And he's solid and reliable. We can lean upon that sort of person in times of our own trouble. So what's interesting is in this description of he was a good man, there's only, um, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, one other man who was a good man, and that's Joseph of Arimathea, who in a very similar way gave up his wealth and his position to be with Christ. So Luke 23 verse 50 talks about Joseph of Arimathea, who was a good man. Why? Because he was looking for the kingdom of God. So, of course, whatever, I don't know if you've had this conversation, people say, hey, how are you doing? You say, I'm, I'm pretty good, thanks. But, oh, there's no, none good but one, you know. And, well, now you've got to come back on that because, oh, no, no, you're wrong there because Barnabas is a good man, so is Joseph Arimathea. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes in our conversation we, we sort of like to project ourselves of our, our knowledge of the word. So there was none good, no, not one. Well, there's a couple of examples there that were good men. 
And the record also says he was full of the Holy Spirit. Now let's just think about that. What does that mean? You know, he was full of the Holy Spirit. How could a person be full of the Holy Spirit? Does that mean, you know, Barnabas went about and he did lots of miracles and we could see, well, he's got the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look, he's healing and people are sick and they're coming to him and, and they're going away and they're recovered. Is that what that means, full of the Holy Spirit? Because there's no record of Barnabas up to this point in time doing any miracles at all. The, the miracle of Barnabas was his spirit, his attitude, his positivity. But it says there he was full of the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that he had the ability, although he would have, uh, to heal people in a physical way. It means more that he had that ability to encourage and to exhort through prophetic utterances. Okay, That was one of the gifts of the Spirit. And he's linked with some very powerful personalities. Here's one, John the Baptist. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Now, you know, what miracles did John the Baptist do that are recorded in Scripture? What miracles, practical miracles of healing and all those sorts of things did he do? Well, he didn't do that. But he was very powerful in the way he projected and prefaced the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and built people up in expectation. That's, John, that's Barnabas. That's what he's doing. So he's, he's very similar there. It says Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and spake with a loud voice. Again, here it is, a projection of their hope and aspiration for the future. This is what Barnabas is all about. Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit. The apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. So what I'm demonstrating here is it wasn't he didn't go around healing people and people stepped back and said, look at his power. It was done verbally by encouragement. And the other interesting thing is he's connected to Stephen because there, in that little phrase there, it says he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And that phrase is used exactly of Stephen the Evangelist, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. It's repeated twice in Acts 6, verse 5 and 8. So it's almost sort of a, a mirror effect of spirit of Stephen with all his effervescent spirit and his energy and his enthusiasm embedded in Barnabas now as he goes forth to a new ecclesia not to criticise, not to put restrictions on them, but to encourage and develop them in their calling in Christ. So that's something that um, we can do as well, brothers and sisters. For Barnabas, he had a strong vision of the future and he passed that on to others. He was firm in his beliefs and he communicated that to other people. And that's so reassuring for us, isn't it? We live in an age of uncertainty. You know, we tap in on the internet to find out certain pieces of information and there's, there's, there's so much disparity between it, we sort of come away thinking, well, I don't know whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. Or, you know, sometimes we get a little bit of a, a medical problem, we look it up and we find we've got some obscure tropical disease that only three people in the world have got. <laughs> so, you know, we go away very nervous. But that's the world today, a world of uncertainty. But for Barnabas, he went up there and he encouraged them to cleave to the Lord because that's the only option. Look at the vision we've got, the hope of the future. That's the man. What was the result? Well, we come to verse uh, 24, the end of verse 24, and there's his name. And much people were Josephed unto the Lord. Remember, we talked in our first study, his real name is Joseph, but he was nicknamed Barnabas. And it says there, considerable numbers were added, that's the word Joseph, or increased to the Lord. Well, then, of course, what was happening here is that his words of encouragement so engendered the ecclesia that it mushroomed even more. So the growth was phenomenal. The Barnabas is thinking, well, I don't know that I can handle all this myself. I need to bring on some more resources, some more people to help. So where does he go? 
Amazingly, in verse 25, it says, Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus, and he wanted to seek out Saul. And I just want to talk about four points here about Barnabas um, that we, we can extract from that verse. And the first one is he wasn't a proud man. He needed some help, and he was big enough to accept that he couldn't be everything to everyone. And I think that's inspiring because, again, you know, we can have prominent brethren that seem to have an amazing uh, variety of talents, but Barnabas was big enough to realise, I need some help, and the right man for the right job is Saul. I need to go and find him and bring him on board. So that's, you know, one little insight into uh, his character. Secondly, he was very definitive in the person that he chose. Um, he could have chosen a number of brethren. I'm sure down in Jerusalem there were inspiring young brethren that had come in the truth that had a lot of energy that could have, of course, transferred up to the Antioch Ecclesia. But he wanted Saul. He knew there was a, a right brother for the job. I don't know if he'd seen him within the last 10 years because that's where Saul was. He'd been in Tarsus for 10 years. But he thought through the situation and he knew Saul had the right qualifications. He had uh, an instinctive skill, this is Saul, for his logical argument and reasoning on the scriptures. We know he was very profound in that. He would be an ideal addition to promoting the truth in the Antioch area. And not only that, Saul respected Jewish protocols. You know, he didn't just discard them and say, well, we'll preach to the Gentiles. He was very sensitive. And, you know, there are references where it says that Paul, on his mission work, spoke to the Jews, and when they didn't hear, he went to the Gentiles. So he understood all that as well. So he was the right... So he thought through that. Barnabas thought through that. Uh, thirdly, I think he may have said it to Paul because Paul, as an apostle, could also transfer the Holy Spirit gifts, and that would have been helpful in the Antioch Ecclesia. And the fourth thing, and the, perhaps one of the most important thing. It confirms Barnabas' understanding of the concept of forgiveness. And Barnabas was big on reconciliation. The ecclesia in Antioch had its foundation, it sprang forth because of the brothers and sisters that were scattered because of the persecution of Saul. Same man. Remember, that, that, that's already in the narrative, we read that. The brothers and sisters fled for their lives up to Antioch. Saul was the cause of that. And Barnabas is putting all this together in Antioch and he says, you know what? I need to be able to bring Saul across because, well, he's lost himself out there in Tarsus and we could do with his resource here. And he needs to rebuild and repair and reintegrate into the lives of brothers and sisters that he hurt. Again, that's not easy for any of us to do. I'm sure we've had conversations where we've walked away and thought, I shouldn't have said that. It got out of control. Uh, and then perhaps we, we, we have the pride that limits us to rebuilding and reattaching ourselves to that particular person that were offended. So Barnabas is big on reconciliation. He's going to get Saul and bring him back right into the area of the families and the brothers and sisters that he upset at one stage. He's, he wants Saul to repair the damage he'd done. That's a right process. It's a right, right pro, pro, protocol. So the beautiful thing about Barnabas is he's not a man of prominence. He doesn't platform himself as being the one and only person in this situation. He brings Saul back into the equation in a spirit of humility and appreciation. So that again is something for us to consider in our ecclesial life. Um, there are brothers and sisters who are more capable in certain areas than perhaps we are, <laughs> but sometimes we just feel as though we've got to do it because we want it done our way. That's not the Barnabas spirit. And there are brothers and sisters that have actually relocated their lives to help in the progression of the truth, and they've had those uh, particular resources and skills and abilities to be able to do that. Um, and so on mission work, we've had families, of course, relocate.
uh, Luke and Jess. Uh, uh, Mansfield up in um, Enfield Ecclesia spent nine months in Cambodia. You know, so it's sort of lovely to, to see that people are uh, able to, to take that on board. And that really was what Barnabas was doing here, and he's inviting Saul to be part of that. So chronologically, of course, we, um, we come to this particular position here where uh, he's with Paul in the Antioch Ecclesia for one year. Acts 11 verse 26 defines that period for us, around about AD 46-47. Okay? And very soon he's going to go on a mission journey with the Apostle Paul as well, once they establish the Ecclesia. But we'll notice there in verse 26 that they spent a year there. And the way Luke writes the narrative is it was a year of refreshment and enjoyment. Because it says there in verse 26, when he found him, so it seems as though they hadn't had a lot of concept necessarily, he brought him to Antioch and it came to pass for a whole year they assembled with the ecclesia, taught the people, and they were called Christians. So they assembled, they joined together, there was cooperation. Uh, they had obviously a gospel uh, promotion activity going on. They had new converts. They had to teach and ground in the truth. They gave structures to the ecclesia. They developed it. They nurtured it. And we notice, as we've already said at the end of verse 26, it says they were first called Christians. Interesting comment. Uh, well, that word means Christ-like, doesn't it? Or Christ ones, Christians. So previously, when we look at the New Testament record, they weren't ever described as Christians. This is the first time. Previously, we have a number of descriptions, disciples, believers, uh, Nazarenes, you know, from Nazareth, followers of Christ from Nazareth, Galileans, or people of the way. This is the first time they're being described as, quote, Christians. And why would that be? It was because they were truly, in this ecclesia, followers of Christ in their lifestyle. All right? So when people looked at them, they said they're like Christ. So they could look at these people and by their lifestyle, their demeanour, their character, their conversation, they connected those people with Christ. And that's a, that's a really wonderful thing. And that particular term, of course, was used later on by the Apostle Peter. He says in 1 Peter 4.16, in fact, it's only used twice in the New Testament. Um, 1 Peter 4.16, Peter says, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. So in that term, uh, what, it, what it's... A defining is a lifestyle, not just a set of beliefs. Sometimes I, I wonder whether we sort of hide behind our titles, Christadelphians, uh, behind just simply our theological beliefs rather than the whole lifestyle that we live. So this is the point of exhortation, that these were Christians and they were identified because people saw them and they saw Christ being followed. And think about ourselves. When people look at us uh, within the ecclesia, within our family, husband, wife, our kids, do they look at us, people we are employed with, people we go to uni with, do they look at us and say, they're a little bit different, they're Christ followers, because that's, again, who we want to be in real terms. So again, we are known perhaps uh, by the title Christadelphians, which Brother Thomas uh, coined back there in, during the uh, American Civil War. And that is a significant title as well, because it marks a difference. Again, I don't think Christian is the right title for us to have because that would just be a, a greyness. And again, over the last five years or so, Christianity has deteriorated into, well, be anyone, be anything, you don't have to change, just come along. So that's where the definition of Christ, Christian has gone. So it is important for us to retain, I think, our title of Christadelphians as a uniquely uh, different group of people who love the word, who have a statement of faith that is consistent with the word, and they live a life 
that is consistent with that statement of faith and with the word of God. Well, one of the problems uh, that was now going to occur in, in verse 27 and 28 is that there's a famine historically occurred around about AD 46. But what's interesting in verse 27 and 28, look at this, verse 27, in those days came prophets from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, that's a great little statement because here's the cohesion between Jerusalem and Antioch. You know, I had this preconception that there was a, you know, there, there was a bit of antagonism between the two ecclesias. One was sort of very conservative and the other was very liberal and, you know, they didn't get on. No, not, not true because there's, a, there's an encouragement of prophets that are being cycled through from Jerusalem up to Antioch to help educate and grow the ecclesia. So they were fully supportive of inter-ecclesial, we might say, fellowship arrangements. They're helping the ecclesia to grow in the truth. Prophets are being sent. And look at the result. Beautiful result. Look at verse 29. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send some financial support out of the brethren down in Judah and Jerusalem. I mean, right there is the Barnabas spirit. That's an outcome of the reciprocation of prophets coming up from Jerusalem, teaching them, and the ecclesia in Antioch says, what can we do in a practical way? We want to help our brothers and sisters down in Jerusalem. And so they send financial support down. Well, that was our first study. That was, that, that's the Barnabas spirit. He thought, how can I help my brothers and sisters? And here it is being echoed in the atmosphere of the Antioch ecclesia. So here's that beautiful outcome of sending Barnabas up to Antioch. He bridged that gap, which could have sort of become a chasm, perhaps if it wasn't handled correctly. He bridged that gap to such an extent that not only one ecclesia was of one heart and soul in Jerusalem, but the whole brotherhood, the whole then known brotherhood became one heart and one soul, work of Barnabas. Amazing, wonderful. And verse 30 says, which they did. Oh, I do like that, flight, that, that little comment there, which they did. Because, you know, often we prognosticate what we should do. You know, we sit, we sit in on a Sunday morning, we hear the exhortation, we make a couple of mental notes, I must ring that sister, I must send a note to that brother, I must have a talk, I must do this, and we never ever do it. So, you know, the spirit is there, but the practicality isn't. But this ecclesia not only wanted to send some relief, they actually did it in verse 30. And we always talk and make a mental note that we should do something, we never get around to doing it, but they did. And, interestingly, look at who takes it at the end of verse 30. They sent it by the hand of, the, of Barnabas, Barnabas and Saul. So Barnabas made the journey back to Jerusalem because he was trustworthy, had a large sum of money. And he's continuing to layer his work because he takes Saul with him. He's going to reintroduce Saul back into the Ecclesia of Jerusalem after 10 years. He's bridging Ecclesias and he never forgets about individuals and individuals in one action. Come on, Saul, let's go back down to the Ecclesia in Jerusalem. We still need to repair our, our fellowship with that. So he didn't just wave it off as something unimportant. He's big on rebuilding and repairing relationships and he makes sure it's done properly. So Saul comes down with Barnabas and they head down to Jerusalem. So you'll notice there in chapter 12, verse 1, we're now introduced to another interesting situation because the execution of the Apostle James happened while they were there. Verse 1, Herod stretched forth his hand, and you go to verse 25 of chapter 12, and it says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. So the point of the narrative is Barnabas and Saul were present to feel and to witness that terrible event. They were in that little group in that upper room with the ecclesia in Jerusalem when the ecclesia was horrified because an apostle had been beheaded. I mean, I, I, we've probably had 
very difficult emotional situations happen in our own lives, perhaps individually and maybe even ecclesially. But you can imagine the, the group there, the ecclesia gathering, thinking, what's going on? An apostle has just lost his life. And guess who is in the midst of all of that? Barnabas and Saul. And the record says in verse 12, they're in the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, John Mark. So again, that's Barnabas' art, and he's got his cousin there, John Mark. Possibly the, the upper room, of course, that they were uh, regularly meeting in. But you can imagine that um, while they were there, and there's a, a couple of situations there, of course, Peter comes to that door and knocks on, and then Peter appears, so there's this whole swell of events. James being executed, Peter was taken to prison, but now he's released, now he's here. You can imagine the brothers and the sisters gathering together, praying uh, for strength, for support, for the family of, of James, uh, John the Apostle, uh, and then Peter knocks on the door and he's there. What a confusion of events. And for Saul, in the middle of all that, he would have known that at one stage he was the protagonist of all this sort of action. I mean, I wonder how he felt through this situation. And he would have had to gather the brothers and sisters around, this is Saul as well, and encourage and support them. So it's interesting the situations that God takes us through life, teaching us that we don't always necessarily have all the answers. And I'm sure the Ecclesia is wondering, why James and why Peter? Different. So we don't always have those answers, but we lean upon the wisdom and the providence of God. So that Acts chapter 11 and, this, and chapter 12, this whole situation connects us, and I want to come across now to Galatians chapter 2, because Paul makes a comment, and there's a whole situation here in Galatians chapter 2 that he, he's talking about that connects us to this particular event. So Galatians chapter 2 and verse 1, here it is, we've just looked at it. It says 14 years after, and this is the chronology that why we can piece the... Uh, Saul's 10 years in Tarsus. It says, 14 years after my conversion, I went again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. Okay, so here it is. This is what we've just talked about. So it's prior to the Jerusalem conference. And Paul's point is in verse 1, that he's not influenced by human opinion, but by direct command and revelation of Christ. So that's chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Paul had direct revelation through an angel. He wasn't relying on pe people's opinions or rumour or innuendo or whatever to, to, to build his spiritual understanding. So there was a private meeting in verse 2, uh, and the outcome, of course, was that Titus wasn't required to be circumcised, and, of course, there was a whole cohesion uh, between uh, Saul, Barnabas, the brothers in Jerusalem that was uh, very, very helpful. And we'll notice in verse 9... Uh, James, Peter and John, who seemed to be, and this is James, the half-brother of the Lord, of course, the James the Apostle that had been beheaded, uh, seemed to be pillars. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles. So just a bit of background, because you might have been thinking, well, this was the Jerusalem conference. No, it's not the Jerusalem conference. It's just the incident we looked at. It's prior to the Jerusalem conference, and I'm going to develop this why. Um, doubtful whether Acts 15 relates to Galatians 2, because if so, Paul's admitted one of his visits to Jerusalem, did he leave that, we just looked at it, did he leave that out? Because that would invalidate his whole argument if he'd already been to Jerusalem on a previous occasion. So it's got to be that one Acts, chapter 11 and 12. Uh, his integrity would have been open to suspicion. Um, when we come to verse 11, of course, there's this a little bit of uh, tension between Peter and Paul. Uh, and we've just got to note, Peter went to Antioch before the Jerusalem conference, because he, he wouldn't have harboured this situation and raised it again after the Jerusalem conference. Peter would not do that. He was a substantial proponent that uh, the extension of grace and mercy should be to the Gentile ecclesia, and there was a whole resolution there in Acts chapter 15, so it's got to come after Acts chapter 15. 
Uh, and that's why, why would Paul continue to draw attention to that if it had already been resolved? Um, it's extremely doubtful. Brethren from James would blatantly contradict the Jerusalem edict. And again, uh, would Barnabas be carried away? So this is the point I want to make. They were given the right hand of fellowship. There was a resolution there. Saul and Barnabas was there. They delivered the money to the ecclesia. Everything was sort of harmonious. However, when we come to verse 11, of course, Saul and Barnabas gone back to Antioch, and now Peter comes up to Antioch. Remember, this is before the Jerusalem conference, so things have still got to be sorted out. And it's there that Paul says, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. He stood with the Jews and the Gentiles separated. So this is, again, an ongoing issue up there in the Antioch ecclesia. And note our connection, our studies are on Barnabas. Here's a point coming out in verse 13. And the other Jews disassembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas, Barnabas, Barnabas was carried away with their dissimulation. That was a shock to the Apostle Paul. Even Barnabas. So it shows the great respect and esteem that Paul had for Barnabas. It was an astounding situation where there was a split in the ecclesia and the brethren had come to Jerusalem. And even Paul says, I can't believe it. Even Barnabas was carried away. It's an amazing situation because Barnabas was a man of great character and great strength. We know he stood with the apostle, or he stood with Saul, helped him through the ministry. We know he's a good man. We've just talked about that. He was full of faith, but he defaults at this critical time. One commentator said this, quite harsh, I think. The defection of Barnabas was of a far more serious nature with regard to Gentile freedom than the vacillation of Peter. Barnabas, the foremost champion of Gentile liberty next to Paul, had become a turncoat. So Barnabas always stood alongside and progressed. You know, the Gentile expansion suddenly separated and it was all thrown into confusion. So it shows us a couple of things. You know, Barnabas, I guess, was human. He was emotive. And, of course, very sadly, the record says he, he stood with the other Jews. In fact, that word dissembled, uh, there with the other Jews dissembled, means to act in a concert or to join. It's like a face-off. There was a big split. There were two groups. It's almost like the, the warriors of David and Saul facing each other with their swords. And Paul uses very strong language. That word dissimulation at the end of verse 13 means hypocrisy. Um, it's used in 1 Peter 2 verse 1. Lay aside all malice, all guile, and hypocrisies. That's that word dissimulation. Like it's strong, strong language. So if two great friends had a problem in a moment of time, let's not imagine that our life's going to be always smooth. And I'm sure you've got, or you've had friendships that are sometimes being tested. Sometimes you think, why did that person react like that? Well, Saul and Barnabas had the, that same uh, particular issue. And I, I think, you know, for Paul it was a staggering moment, and perhaps for Barnabas as well, uh, as he stood aside, separated himself from Saul and stood with the Jews. And verse 14 says... Um, I said unto Peter before them all, and there's this whole argument that goes on in this particular case. And you can imagine Saul standing there and across from him is Barnabas, his great and long-standing friend. And I wonder how Barnabas's heart felt in that whole explosion, this inflammation. I wonder how Barnabas's heart really felt. Was he trying to, you know, bridge the gap and he thought, well, you know what, if we can placate the, the, the Jewish contingent from Jerusalem, maybe we can get through this. You know, one wonders... Maybe he was hoping temporarily to go along with the Jerusalem party and smooth things on over later on. 
But you know, there's a positive point that comes out of this, which gives us a real insight into the character of Barnabas. I love this. Barnabas was his own man. Right, he didn't tiptoe around in the shadow of the Apostle Paul. And sometimes, you know, we'd imagine that uh, some of these great and prominent brethren, you just sort of be very careful to tiptoe and you didn't want to offend him. Barnabas had a backbone in which he would stand aside for a moment from someone he loved because he didn't think he was doing the right thing. I, I think it shows the fortitude and the strength of Barnabas to be able to do that. So he wasn't a puppet, he wasn't a pawn. He stood for his values and principles. And he stood against Paul. But you know what? There's another level to Barnabas' character, and that is the bigness of his heart, because he never retained that position, did he? He never opposed Paul for the rest of his life. He wasn't a bitter man. He was big enough to recognise his own mistake and reconcile with Paul. That takes a big, big man. And I'm sure all of us have had situations where we've had an argument and there's been a rift, and we just don't know how to repair that, and maybe it's because of our own pride. And Barnabas was a big enough man with a big heart that even in a mistake that he made, he recognised it, and he rebuilt his relationship with Paul. And in our next study, he's going to go off on mission work with him. What an amazing man. We've got this little comment here, which I think sometimes may affect us. Perhaps it's something of a comfort in our own problems to know that for a time, these two great friends were not in the same fellowship together. And we can have friends in life and we can see things differently. And sometimes that leads to a divergence of views and, you know, we drift off on different pathways. Let's only make that a temporary thing. We don't want to make that a permanent, bitter thing. And Barnabas was a big enough man to repair that breach and to work together with Paul. And I find that just insightful there in that situation. We need to be able to recover and repair friendships, brothers and sisters. That is the Barnabas spirit. So in this whole situation, we learn this, uh, and particularly from Galatians 2, we learn this aspect of balance. Right? It's important not to over or underreact. Barnabas understood the feelings of the Jerusalem Ecclesia, but also felt the Antioch Ecclesia's great thankfulness for the grace of God. So he had that balance there, first of all, initially when he went there. He was prepared to go to another Ecclesia and city for a year and to help the advancement of his brothers and sisters. He was a man of enthusiasm. He encouraged others in their work. There was no jealousy as far as he was concerned. He was faithful. He didn't demand something of others that he didn't manifest. He was a good teacher. Again, we don't just hide behind the title that we're Christadelphians. We need to be able to be good teachers in the things that we talk about and the lives that we live. Motivation, sometimes we're called upon to bridge, to be the bridge repairers for individuals or ecclesias, and that was Barnabas. And finally, we've just talked about recalibration. We need to be able to deal with our mistakes and not dwell on them. We need to recalibrate. Sometimes we need to you know, back off or move forward. That's all about relationships, and Barnabas is very practical in helping us and teaching us the importance of that. So, questions for ourselves. Do we criticise other ecclesias for what we perceive to be their failings and forget about the evidence of the grace of God? So that's the phrase that Barnabas used when he went to Antioch. wonder how we view other ecclesias. Do we look at their faults and think, oh, look at them? Do we have a purpose of heart to cleave to the Lord? Or, you know, we've been in the truth for 40 years and we're in neutral. Do we attempt to solve everything ourselves? Or are we prepared to call upon others to assist in building and restoring? So we need this brother here because... You know, he's got a, a special ability or he's, he's, he's very well-rounded to be able to help us through this situation. Barnabas committed to a year away from home. How committed are we to ecclesial service when the weather's too hot or cold? I mean, this is the test, isn't it? Too hot today, too cold, too busy, too tired. Barnabas committed for a year to go somewhere else to help brothers and sisters. Sometimes friendships break apart. Are we big enough and humble enough to rebuild and rework precious relationships 
for the betterment of the truth. That, brothers and sisters, is the Barnabas spirit. We seem to uh, perhaps have forgotten what our subject is because it's sort of been a while, I guess, uh, since we've talked about Barnabas, almost a week. <laughs> so uh, you'll remember that our first study was about uh, his generosity from a practical and financial viewpoint. Uh, that he was a very close friend of the man Saul who later became the Apostle Paul and introduced him into the Ecclesia. But he was a good man, described as a good man up there in the Ecclesia of Antioch because he, he blended that together and helped that Ecclesia to grow. And now we're going to see another dimension of Barnabas, really quite multi-layered, this particular brother, as he sort of takes risks and uh, extends the truth now beyond that little warmth of the ecclesia there in Antioch uh, to boundaries and countries unknown, we might say. So in a, in a very wonderful way, uh, this man Barnabas, I would say, was living the spirit of the atonement. You know, we often talk about the atonement in, in theoretical terms and what it means and the sacrifice of Christ. But sort of when we want to transfer it to almost a three-dimensional picture, what does that mean? I think we've got in this man, Barnabas, who lived the atonement because the word atonement, of course, is reconciliation. It almost seems that every little snapshot we're taking of Barnabas in some area, whether it's an individual or whether it's an ecclesia or multi-ecclesia, he's bringing them together and he's reconciling. So, you know, for us, I guess that's the challenge. So we've got to live the atonement as well as believe and understand it. So we notice that uh, Barnabas was selected from the Jerusalem Ecclesia to go up to Antioch and to help grow and nurture the brothers and sisters there. And he travelled out to Tarsus because he needed some extra support for himself and he was big enough to realise that he couldn't do everything. And so he brought and encouraged Saul of Tarsus to come and assist him. So they together spent a year, one year, it's recorded here in the narrative, in the, in the scripture for us, one year there in Antioch uh, growing and developing the truth. And I guess often we sort of forget uh, the background domestic duties for, for Barnabas. We don't know, do you have a wife? Perhaps not. But, you know, it's a big thing just to take a year off and, and go somewhere and help another ecclesia. But Barnabas was that sort of very generous person. And we notice as well what is particularly important is that Barnabas, you know, he wasn't just a fuzzy emotional type of person. Sometimes you know, within the realms of people that we mix with. We get those people who are very warm and encouraging, but that's about all they ever are. There's no real foundation. And Barnabas was not that sort of man. He had a very deep foundation and love of the Scriptures as well. So he wasn't just warm and fuzzy. So when we come back into the chapter 13 and verse 1, which is really where we want to start off this little adventure with Barnabas, we notice that he's introduced that into the Ecclesia. So chapter 13 and verse 1 uh, gives us a little background of the Ecclesia at Antioch. It says, now there were in the ecclesia that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers. So, you know, as far as Barnabas was concerned, that's the starting point and the foundation of the building of this ecclesia. So it wasn't all about just the love of Jesus and come on in and, you know, you'll be comfortable. There were prophets and teachers established in that ecclesia and it lists us, and guess who heads off the list? It's Barnabas and then Simeon and then Lucius and then Mananaim and then uh, 
others as well. So there's, there's around about five brethren that are in this particular ecclesia and they're helping to develop prophets and teachers. So what we're establishing right here and now is that Barnabas, of course, as a prophet, he's defined as a prophet, had the capability of serious teaching and growing and nurturing the ecclesia. And it's interesting when we look at the construction of how Barnabas and Saul are connected together, that Barnabas always heads the list. All right? the, these are important reflections. So right back in chapter 9, we notice that Barnabas took him, Barnabas sought Saul, it was Barnabas and Saul in chapter 11, verse 30, Barnabas and Saul, all the way through, until we get to our chapter tonight where, of course, Paul now grows into that leadership role, sort of being off the scene for, for 10 years, or really for 14 years, uh, well, 10 years at Antioch, uh, and now he's going to come back into the scene and they're going to head off onto mission work. So here's where sort of that transition takes place, where Saul takes a leadership role and Barnabas backs him up. So it's interesting just to see the construction of that particular uh, narrative. But here in verse 1, again, significant that Barnabas heads the list. So his, uh, his character and his love of the scriptures really became a point of why these two men, Barnabas and Saul, were chosen now to spring forth into foreign lands and develop uh, the truth because they were eminently qualified. So this sound basis of, of prophets and teachers really give us the, the idea of what the Antioch Ecclesia was all about and, of course, would have been a great comfort to the elders in the Jerusalem Ecclesia. This just wasn't a sort of a fuzzy ecclesia growing up north. It was full of Gentiles who didn't really understand the foundational aspects of the truth. So it's very clear there in verse 1, this prophets and teachers. And you know, the Apostle Paul, a little bit later on, wrote to the Corinthians, remember, because they got the balance out, out, of, out of whack, really. In Corinthians, he says, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, God has set some in the ecclesia, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and after that gifts, and he sort of spirals down to, on the end, he puts the gift of speaking in tongues. So in the Corinthian ecclesia, we know they had that issue of brethren wanted to be prominent and they sort of display these pseudo gifts that they thought they had, all for you know, the dynamics of their personality. That was not the case with Barnabas, wasn't the case with the Antioch ecclesia, uh, they'd established it very firmly on teaching and prophecy. So Barnabas, here's another little point that we're learning about his character, he was a foundation when it came to prof prophetical utterances or prophecy or explaining the scriptures. And remember, if you had our first study, uh, that was his name, Barnabas, son of prophecy, son of inspiration. And remember, the apostles added that nickname, son of encouragement. So he not only had a depth as far as the knowledge of the scriptures was concerned, he could project that with energy and with enthusiasm and encouragement as a comfort. It wasn't just all theory, it was living reality. So he blended that and he became a very uh, powerful influence for bringing people into the truth. And as we say, he heads this particular list of five brethren. Well, of course, it's interesting to see those five brethren as well that are listed there as prophets and teachers because they come from a, a beautiful variety of different backgrounds. So you've got Barnabas, who came from Cyprus. Of course, his ethnicity was a Hebraic Jew. We've got Simon, who's nicknamed Niger, which means black, comes from Cyrene, northern Africa. And, of course, there was a, another whole area there. Lucius came from Cyrene as well and perhaps uh, returning Jews, proselytes, of course, he would appeal to them. Manaem was an Idumean, uh, had Greek and Herodian background, 
And Saul, of course, Tarsus, Jerusalem, well, he was a Roman citizen. He'd come back from Tarsus. So again, you know, you've got this amazing blend of five prominent teachers who established foundational work there in the ecclesia at Antioch. And so they came from all different stratas. Um, so as we, as we know there, there was Menahem who came from quite a, a qualified background and perhaps would have mixed with some of the aristocracy uh, and the higher end of what we, we might call the, the, the strata levels there in society. So these are all blended in and they had financial benefits, uh, religious differences, nationalities and colour as well. So it was sort of quite a nice background there. And we actually know a little bit about the first one after uh, Barnabas, of course, is Simeon. Well, he was a, a brother uh, in the truth, and we've got a little uh, background to, to Simeon back in uh, Mark chapter 15 and verse 21. So he was the brother. It says, and they compel one Simon or Simeon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus. So when Mark writes his gospel record, He's including his sons, which the brothers and sisters knew because they came into the truth. Now, it says he was a, a Cyrenian, so he's from North Africa. There's a little bit of, of a comment back in Acts chapter 6 in one of our earlier studies. It says some of these belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those of Cilicia, which disputed with Stephen. So it seems as though there may be connections back there that these were synagogues that catered for various elements of returning Jews, and, of course, uh, Simeon, a Cyrenian, was perhaps a member of one of those uh, synagogues and he came to the truth perhaps through the work of, of Stephen or certainly listened to this man Saul, who was a Pharisee at the time, argue with members of the, the um, synagogue. So there were quite uh, a broad range of racial and we might even say cultural divisions uh, that, that were there in this particular ecclesia. But it's beautiful how Barnabas... And Saul, of course, and these brethren were able to blend all that together so that different cultures were able to integrate, of course, into the ecclesia. And that's a, a challenge, I think, for all of us. As we look around, we, we come from all different levels, different areas in life, uh, different stratas, different status in life. But the beautiful thing about the scripture, if it's grounded properly on the word of God, is that we can all mix together because we have that one bonding element of our love of the word of God. And so this is the atmosphere that these five men fed into that ecclesia. And although there was this broad cultural aspect, they blended together and they grew. And I always think of my early years back in Wood Woodville when we were growing up. And, of course, we had this influx of different ethnicities, Greek and Italian brethren. And, of course, it was always amazing to us sort of uh, distant sort of English extraction to you know, handshake people very courteously. And, of course, we'd have the Greek and the Italians, they'd be up there hugging and kissing each other. And for us, it was like almost a frightening experience. <laughs> but they were very emotionally connected. And, of course, you know, I, I will remember some of these Greek brethren having very robust and vigorous discussions here in the centre aisle. And you'd be thinking, oh, wait a minute, someone's going to get their fists out soon. And then they'd end the discussion, hug each other, and off they'd go. And we're thinking, wow, that's amazing. But that's what it should be like, of course, and that's what was happening here in this environment of uh, Antioch. So the combination, of course, of these uh, uh, brothers particularly was so beneficial that the Spirit, you notice this in verse 2, selected them for an even greater task. So it says there, verse 2, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, I want Saul, or Barnabas, I should put it in the right order, Barnabas and Saul for this work. 
They fasted and they prayed and they laid their hands on them. So I didn't quite finish this story here. Um, So there's that reference there in chapter 11 talking about uh, the men of Cyrene and of course there's a reference in Romans chapter 16 verse 13 one of the sons of Simeon here in the Roman ecclesia there. But, oh I didn't even do this one here, Brethren with Barnabas. So they found this ossuary of Alexander. Um, So the two sons are mentioned and in fact in recent times they've found this ossuary of uh, Alexander the son of Simon. So it's quite amazing that this particular family uh, have archaeological evidence of their existence and they've found this ossuary uh, there in recent times and it's etched onto the stone there. Uh, This was one of our brethren back in the times of the Lord Jesus. Quite amazing. But coming, of course, as I said there to verse 3, where they laid their hands on them. Why did they do this? Why did they fast? Why did they lay hands? And that's very interesting in verse 3, when they had fasted. we Obviously, we don't, well, most of us probably don't do that unless we need to diet for some particular reason. But, you know, why fasting? What was this whole process about? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a time of significance where you want to concentrate on the task ahead. You remember back in the times of Esther, Esther 4 verse 7, uh, Mordecai came to Esther and said, I want you to go before the king. And so Esther fasts because she's preparing herself to present herself to the king. So there's a task ahead. She wants to be focused. She wants to bring the, the blessing and overseeing care of God on that particular activity. And that's exactly what was happening here. So... They were selected for a task of significance. And, of course, they laid their hands upon them. And this has been sort of a a demonstrated thing right through Old Testament and through New Testament as well. And I guess in a a shadow form, when a a new candidate is baptised, we give them the right hand of fellowship, which would be, I guess, our equivalent to sort of laying on hands. And, well, we all go up and hug and shake hands as well. So it's a similar gesture as well. So it is a, a public endorsement and a personal encouragement the pathway this person is going to go down, we support and we encourage. And it's just a, a wonderful thing when we see a newly baptised person, they have that endorsement of the whole ecclesia as we all line up because we want to give our personal welcome to them. So they laid their hands upon them and that was an encouragement to Saul and Barnabas and Saul because they were going to go into territory that was unknown. It'd be a bit like us being selected for mission work in Azerbaijan. You know, it'd be a little bit frightening. I remember when we first went to China, you should see my face on the plane. It was like white, pale. We were uncertain as to what sort of environment we were going in. We'd never been there before. We were sort of on our own. So it was quite apprehensive. And so for for Barnabas and Saul, this was very similar. They were going into territory, really, that that had been unexplored. Uh, Brother Bolton has this lovely section in his book, and he really highlights this particular aspect that we tend to gloss over in the narrative. He said the incident or the first mission is told simply in a few words and no one reading for the first time would imagine, here it is, one of the greatest tasks ever set before men being inaugurated. Their message was not from an earthly potentate nor was it from an influential party or people. They carried no insignia or office, no herald announced their departure. Their only send-off had been fasting a prayer but their credentials were with a demonstration of spirit and power. And then he goes on to say, ordinary individuals might have been appalled as they faced such a task. As far as Saul was concerned, people said of him, his bodily presence was weak and his speech of no account. So 
you know, we need to repicture Paul, recalibrate Paul sometimes as to the person that we think he was. I love this last sentence. There was obviously nothing imposing in such a man, but whatever his appearance may have been, his body was tempered as steel. So, of course, that really is the characteristic of both these men. It was a, a, a difficult task that was ahead of them. It was the, just the unknown. And both of them were being launched out to spread the gospel. And out of all the resources that was available in the ecclesial world, not just Antioch, I mean, the Spirit could have selected anyone from anywhere. We've got Stephen the Evangelist. There were some of these, you know, quite... Um, Philip the Evangelist, I should say. Philip the Evangelist uh, with his, his daughters, obviously a very prophetic and a very profound family. They could have been sent out to foreign land. But of all the brothers in the ecclesia at that time, the Spirit selected Barnabas and Saul for this particular work. So two great men, and Barnabas was selected as one of them. Question, let's just stop for a minute and think, would God select you? You know, if, if, if for an extension or for the preaching or the development of the gospel, do you think you would have the qualifications to go somewhere into the unknown and to begin a, a preaching effort? I mean, that's quite a challenge. Um, if the spirit which I know obviously we don't have, but if there was a, a divine spirit that directed us that you were the person that would be selected to go, would you go? I mean, there's got to be an acquiescence to of that determination. And Barnabas had the respect and he had the ability and he went with Saul on this amazing work. So the thing I'm just trying to emphasise is we often place uh, a focus on, on Saul or Paul and his gospel preaching work as it launched out into foreign lands, different countries. But the point I want to make is Barnabas was his equal. All right. So there's the divine qualification and support that I want two men. Saul's got that determination and Barnabas is his equal as far as knowledge is concerned and as far as presentation of the gospel. So there's two men that are selected. And it wouldn't be any small task for Barnabas to keep up with the with the dynamics and the spirit and the energy and the enthusiasm of the Apostle Paul. You know, you, you've got to have two brethren that dovetail together and synchronise in their presentation of the gospel. So Barnabas you know, wasn't down here and Saul's up here. They were equally capable of presenting the gospel. And we'll see this as we flow through the narrative of chapter 13. And again, it required incredible stamina. That's why we say Barnabas' age is not that much different than Saul or the Apostle Paul. Maybe a few years older. Not a, he's not an old man. He's around about the same age as Saul. And, of course, this is a trip that took around about 18 months. So this was no sort of two-week tourist venture uh, into a foreign land and then come back home. This was quite a phenomenal work. And, of course, we know the position here at Antioch and Pisidia. John Mark, the going got too tough for him, and he defects back to Jerusalem. And, of course, Paul and Barnabas continue on their journey through that area of Antioch, Iconium, Lystra and Derby, and then sort of back again to the Antioch Ecclesia. So interesting on the map there, you'll notice it began at Cyprus, which was important because that was the homeland of Barnabas. And so, you know, he goes as a starting point off into familiar territory uh, and then they launch into the unknown there. And as we say, somewhere between 18 to 24 months. So... This little phrase is quite important through the chapter. This wasn't a journey of self-promotion. And as we skim down the chapter, you'll notice, uh, and it's worth colouring in, that the foundation 
of which they presented the gospel was not on their personality or you know their eloquence or their ability to speak the scriptures it was on the solid grounding of a logical expression of what the bible was all about so you see this beginning in verse 5 they preached the word the word of god the doctrine the law the word of salvation the voice of the prophet written in the second psalm they're quoting the old testament and so it all goes on so this is explaining to us that when barnabas went out with saul both of these men had a deep foundational understanding of the bible all right barnabas wasn't just trotting along behind paul learning things they were both able to distill with equal power so they went off to as we say in verse 4 uh, being sent forth by the Holy Spirit, they departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. So this, as we've said, was the homeland of Barnabas. It may be that he had some family connections there. Perhaps he had some friendships there. Um, remember also there were many of the members of the Antioch Ecclesia who were from Cyprus as well. That's back in chapter 11, verse 19 and 20. So it was... Uh, a good starting point for this particular mission work. And, of course, the other thing is particularly important is they've got an, an additional person, and that's John Mark. You'll notice that in verse 5. When they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to their minister. John Mark, actually, John Mark. So what's interesting about this um, expanded point of the narrative here? Here's Barnabas, he's related to John Mark, his cousin. So not only is he supporting Saul in preaching work, he's helping to nurture and develop John Mark in that situation. So a little bit of a snapshot of, well, who is John Mark? He's Barnabas's cousin, Colossians 4 verse 10. So there's a family connection here, which is going to be important as this narrative plays out toward the end of the chapter. His mother was Mary, Acts 12, wealthy family, is connected to Peter, wrote the Gospel of Mark, and very beautifully, later on, a valued worker with Paul. So Paul references John Mark and said he's valuable for preaching the Gospel. So it seems as though Saul learnt something uh, about being a father in the ecclesia from Barnabas. Uh, just a note here, only here is his Jewish name, John, uh, and an emphasis on Jewish synagogues. They spoke in the Jewish synagogues. This is the clue that he found preaching the Gentiles difficult or uncomfortable. So he's there described as their minister. What does all that mean? Well, interesting Greek word. Uh, it means basically an under rower. And the word is used here in 1 Corinthians 4. Let a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ, under rowers. Now, this was a, a humble uh, service that was provided. You're, you're basically at the bottom of a boat rowing. So that's the, uh, that's the Greek word there, hyperetes, under rower, uh, definition, one who acts under direction, doesn't ask questions, who does the thing he's appointed to without hesitation, and who reports to the people that are superior. So John was the add-on uh, to help Barnabas and Saul preach the gospel. So what is this under rower? Just a couple of slides on this to explain that. Uh, they were called triremes, of course, and these were very... Uh, very fast boats. So they had three layers of rowers on both sides. Okay, uh, three different levels. Uh, they could, you know, go very fast. So there are five points about an under rower. Uh, they're called galley slaves and they row to the captain's beak, all right, beat. So when you've got, you know, three rows and you've got hundreds of rowers, 
If they weren't synchronised, it'd be absolute chaos. So the captain or, or someone on the upper deck gave the, the sound with a drum and they would all row in synchronisation, all right? So 150 rows together or oars together, they were all rowing. Of course, fairly precise. And just a note here, a single inexpert rower could throw off the whole crew. So it's very important to synchronise, which I'm going to blend these out into ecclesial life. You know, we've got to row together. We've got to be in synchronisation. We don't want to cause disharmony. That creates chaos in the ecclesia. So here, secondly, they had to row together. And again, that's that point there. Um, it would, would tangle everybody up if they got, got out of timing. Uh, they had to trust the captain, all right? Now, they don't know where the boat's going. They're under the bottom of the deck. All they see is the person's head in front of them. So they've got no idea of direction. They just had to trust the captain. And for us as under-rowers, as ministers as well, we've got to trust the captain for the direction in life. We don't see where we're going always. It's not clear to us. But uh, got the note here, the slave was not allowed to question. His job was to obey the beat of the captain's drum and row his hardest. Again, you know, that's us in our lives. Uh, galley slave was committed for life. It wasn't like, well, you know, can I get to Rome on a cheap passage because I want to have a look at Rome, a bit of a tourist sort of idea. No, you, you're a galley slave for life. So it's a commitment there. Comfort was not a concern. Uh, and the leg chains bound every slave to the ship with deadly certainty. So if the ship went down, you went down with it. So point being, committed for life. And that's for ourselves, brothers and sisters. You know, this isn't just a, a happy life for us to explore relationships and, and enjoy our time together. We want part of that, of course. But essentially, it's uh, a commitment of faithful service. And in the end of it, there was no honour. I mean, you were just a, a galley slave. So if an under-rower was ever seen, it was because he wasn't doing his job. So there were three tiers, rowers all down below. You were never seen. As an individual, you weren't that important. You just merged into the team. So they're all really good spiritual lessons for us. Uh, and here are those points, those uh, five points there as well. Remain obedient to the requirements of our master. Cooperate. Trust Yahweh to take us where we need to go. Be consistent. And there's no expectation in this life of some sort of amazing adulation. So for all of us, that's what John Mark was selected to be. Of course, really Saul and, uh, Saul and Barnabas were just mirror images of that in their service and in preaching the gospel. And I always like this particular statement here. You can't rock the ecclesial boat if you're busy rowing. That's so important for us, isn't it? So when you're doing nothing, you're looking around and looking at everybody else and thinking, well, what are they doing? Or, you know... I hope the arranging brethren know what they're up to. We're busy looking at everyone else. That's disastrous. If we get out of synchronisation on a boat, a perfectly balanced boat, and we stop doing our part, well, the boat eventually just goes around in circles because there's someone not rowing. So this is what John Mark was being educated in. And, of course, there were Barnabas and Saul in absolute synchronisation pushing the gospel boat forward. Well, as we read through the narrative, and you know the particular story, um, sadly for Barnabas in his own home country, the uh, preaching effort was rejected because there was this man called Elymas, the sorcerer, who tried to dissuade uh, the proconsul there that you know this, this was not something to uh, waste his time on. So interesting, just thinking about that, thinking about that, Barnabas is in his home country, probably knows quite a few people there, maybe he grew up there. And here he comes and he's going to preach the gospel and it's rejected. 
And it was Christ, wasn't it, uh, in Matthew 13, verse 57. The narrative says they took offence to him, but Jesus said the only place a prophet isn't honoured is in his own hometown and his own house. It was the Lord Jesus Christ when he went back to Nazareth, of course. Hometown, people he knew, people you'd think would respond, but he was rejected of them. So that was something that Barnabas had to deal with. Imagine being on your first trip, you're all excited, you're going to preach the gospel. First stopping point, you meet a bit of resistance. Think, oh, what's the point of that? So Barnabas had to have that positive spirit with Saul to push forward and beyond. So they preached to this man, Sergius Paulus. So this is in verse 7, the deputy of the country. Sergius Paulus, he was a prudent man. He called for Barnabas and Saul and he wanted to hear about the word of God. So this man was a very important man. Uh, he answered directly to the Roman Senate. Uh, historically, when you look up, he was known as a man with a brilliant intellect and he had an interest in the supernatural, uh, was enticed by superstition. Well, there's lots of names when we come to verse 6. It said they found a certain Jew, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, uh, but he's also called, verse 8, Elymas. So there's a sorcerer, he's a false prophet, he's a Jew, his name's Bar-Jesus, but his name is changed in verse 8 to Elymas. So <laughs> there's a lot of confusing things happening here. But I think there's a play on all the names, of course, because Bar-Jesus means son of salvation. But he changed his name to Elymas, verse 8 says, so is his name by interpretation. Well, there's a whole connection there to Barnabas because he had his name changed as well. So Bar-Jesus was a false prophet. His name apparently meant, you know, son of salvation. He's confronted by Barnabas, a prophet. We know he's a prophet because verse 1 says Barnabas was a, a true uh, prophet and his name means son of prophecy. So Saul, of course, changed this uh, Bar-Jesus and calls him in verse 10. We know it's in verse 10. He calls him the child of the devil, son of the devil. So there's a really sort of interesting uh, change in the narrative of all these uh, names and their meanings. It's interesting that at this point, Saul, verse 13, his name is changed to Paul. So Paul means little, and of course perhaps that's in contrast to the arrogance of this self-named prophet, Elymas. Now there's an interesting correlation between Elymas and Saul, and, and perhaps Saul saw a little bit of himself in that man. Because when we uh, throw up these, these contrasts, of course, you know, there's some prestigiousness in the early life of Saul. This man was with the deputy. Uh, he, he sort of determined that if any was found this way, he'd persecute them. This man resisted the right ways of the Lord. Uh, verse 12 talks about Saul had a vision of a man putting his hand upon him earlier on, back in chapter 9. Uh, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, verse 11. And you can look down and you get down to the bottom. Saul called Paul. Uh, whose name was Barges or Elymas, so his name was changed. So there's almost like a, an interplay here between what was going on in this situation and Paul, who, who became known by from this point, reflecting and thinking, you know what, I was much like this man. And interestingly, if you have a look at verse 11, see what Paul does. He says, you will be blind for a season. Uh, that's what happened to Saul, wasn't it? And it helped him to come to the truth. And interestingly, this is Paul's first miracle. This is Paul's first recorded miracle as an apostle. It's actually in a negative form. You know, mostly we tend to think, well, a miracle rise up and, you know, you're no longer lame or you're not deaf anymore, away you go. Well, this one was almost the reverse of that. 
But perhaps it was a miracle. I mean, I don't know the end of the story here. Maybe Paul saw a little bit of himself in this man and thought, well, this miracle will help him see what the truth is all about. You'll be blind for a season. So that's uh, exactly what happened there. And, of course, we've got uh, a very interesting comment in verse 47 of this chapter. We had this reading. It's in relation to Paul. It says, For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light to the Gentiles. But here in this very chapter, he makes a, a Jew blind. <laughs> so there's sort of bookends uh, to this particular incident. So just got the comment here. Is at this point, Saul began to call himself Paul, which means little. Perhaps he saw a mirror image of himself in Elymas and was humbled by it. It was the beginning of extensive work to the Gentiles, set thee to be a light, but his first, first action was to make a Jew blind. And Paul had a little bit of a similar experience, of course, in Corinth. I wonder, this seemed to be the pattern of preaching the gospel. So when he writes to the Corinthians, he talks about the hidden things of dishonesty and craftiness, which was sort of in Elymas, he was a false prophet, uh, he's named Bar son of a disciple of Jesus, like he's deceitful. Uh, there was a mist of darkness. He was blind for a season. And then, of course, there's this position of, of light and knowledge flowing through. So it almost seemed to be a pattern of developing that people needed to be humbled uh, and needed to have their vision restricted so they could see the glorious light of the gospel. Well, as a result of the preaching effort in verse 12, we'll notice that the proconsul believed. And I want to say, not because of the miracle, but a result, what does it say? Verse 12, the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at, not the miracle, it says the doctrine or the teaching of the, the Lord or the word. So who is this Sergius Paulus? Well, again, a very interesting personality. Uh, this is a particular stone that was, uh, well, that's in the uh, museum in Turkey now. It was an inscription found in Pisidia, Antioch in Pisidia. So historically, when we drill down to this background of Sergius Paulus, he was a very important individual. His family had large estates up in Antioch. This is where uh, Saul and Barnabas eventually went. They went to Antioch. And this individual had large family estates up there. And the suggestion is perhaps he encouraged Saul and Barnabas to go off into that area uh, to teach to his family as well. Uh, one little commentator made an interesting point. It says that here possibly there was the, the Roman process of adrogation. I've never ever heard of that word, adrogation. And that's sort of like an adoption process. And it's, it's sort of like a, a, a Roman who has enabled a, an adoption process to happen, a connection, a family relationship, and hence they suggest that's why he was renamed on, as Paul. So it appears that this proconsul had uh, and developed a great love of the truth and a great love of these men. And a little bit later on, uh, the records, historical records, says he returned to Rome and was appointed curator of the Tiber and the channels. He was in charge to stop the flooding in Rome, so a very important individual, and perhaps was an early foundational member of the ecclesia in Rome. Again, we don't know a lot about how the Roman ecclesia developed, but perhaps... You know, this was the ripple effect of the gospel. So, as we said before, this is the first time in verse 13 where the name change structure occurs. And for the first time, Paul precedes, precedes Barnabas. 
But I like to think, and there's no evidence of this in the scripture, that Barnabas was jealous or envious at any of this. You know, as Paul gradually grew in confidence, uh, he, of course, became the presenter of the gospel. And there's no evidence of any envy that, that Barnabas had. There's no jealousy. I mean, that could have been a point where Barnabas said, well, I'm going back with John Mark. But no, he's an unselfish man. It's the Barnabas spirit. He wants to move forward, encourage and bring people to Christ. So that's um, a wonderful thing. Well, we notice at the end of verse 13 there, it talks about John. End of verse 13, it says, but John departed and returned to Jerusalem. So this word departed is twice. You'll notice there at the end of verse 13, John departing, returned to Jerusalem, verse 14, but when they departed. Now, this is a really interesting incident in the life of Barnabas. Now, just have a think about this. John Mark was Barnabas' cousin. John Mark was obviously saying, look, the going's too hard. Oh, I, I need to go back to Jerusalem. I can't keep going on. Just imagine the pressure that placed on Barnabas now. Was he going to sort of side with a, a family relative and say, yeah, look, Paul, you know, what, what you've done here, it, it's just very forthright. You know, it's a, a dominating spirit. I, I don't want to be part of this. I'm going to hook up with John Mark. We'll head back to Jerusalem. Just a little bit too hard. So Barnabas is placed in a difficult quandary as to where his decision will go. And John Mark, of course, family connection, he could have easily uh, made that decision, criticised Paul for his excessive determination and Paul needed to be a bit more flexible and make allowances for people, but there was none of that. So the interesting thing here is Barnabas, rather than siding with his family, sided with the Apostle Paul. He chose to go on because he wasn't simply a people person, but he was a God-focused person. He had a mission. They were both selected for a mission, and they were both Saul, or Paul now, and Barnabas uh, really need to move forward on that mission. So it wasn't that he was unemotional. I think he would be quite upset, but it was almost like that position between Abraham and Lot. A decision had to be made, and that was not going to be a separating point between them. Both Barnabas and the Apostle Paul now move forward to preach the gospel. So we need to think about our own lives, brothers and sisters, and, and the connection to family. Do we sometimes use family as a bit of an excuse for not involving ourselves more in ecclesial work or the work or the role of responsibilities that we have? Sometimes we sort of draw back and we, because of family or connections or what we need to do with family, we sort of defect on the assistance that we need to give our spiritual family. We make an excuse for that. Uh, Jesus had a similar situation, didn't he, when his family stood without and someone said to Jesus, your family's outside, they, they want to have a discussion. Uh, what did Jesus do on that occasion? He said, well, I want you to know that this is my family. The people here are listening to the word of God. This is my family. So again, let's not use family as a bit of an excuse that, well, I'd like to do this and thanks very much for the offer, but, you know, I, I, I can't take that position at this time because, you know, I've got family responsibilities. I realise... We all have family responsibilities and we've got to make sure we get that balance. But what I'm saying is don't use it as an excuse. Barnabas could have had an excuse here for saying, well, I need to head back with John Mark, but he gave his support uh, to the Apostle Paul. And I think that's, again, the magnificent spirit of Barnabas, above and beyond an excuse to give his support, his wholehearted support to the work of the truth and to the, the support of, of the Apostle Paul. So... 
John Mark, of course, headed back to Jerusalem. And I just got a little, I guess, a, a digression a little bit. Mark wrote the Gospel, and I wonder whether he thought about Barnabas when he wrote this particular record uh, about Christ and the parable and the statement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Easier for a camel to go through a needle eye than a rich man. Well, Barnabas was rich, he was wealthy. I tell you, no one that was left home, brothers or sisters or lands, well, Barnabas, of course, gave up some valuable land uh, and he experienced persecution. We're going to see that in some of these journeys and he gave up a very prestigious position, possibly as we indicated on one of our first studies, perhaps as a member of the Sanhedrin. So they headed across in verse 13, uh, really gives us that, or verse 14, says they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia. So this is um, a very difficult area for preaching the gospel. In fact, uh, back in verse 13, we've got Perga in Pamphylia. Pamphylia. This word means of every tribe. So it's a sort of a geographical locator of the diverse races that inhabited that, and quite hostile, that particular area. So they were heading into not some sort of cushy gospel proclamation work. They were heading into an area where there was a mix of races. And Paul remembers that in Acts chapter 15 and verse 38. He makes reference uh, to that when there was the Jerusalem conference and he particularly points out that was the point at which John Mark left. Uh, Acts 15, 38 says, Paul thought not good to take with them who had departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. So, you know, what was the reason for John Mark's defection? Was there a physical assault that happened there? Possibly. Did they suffer an unrecorded shipwreck? Remember, Paul wrote about three shipwrecks when he wrote to the Corinthians. That's before his journey to Rome. So somewhere uh, along, the, along the way, there were three shipwrecks that had happened. Maybe, maybe that was the cause of it. But they were going into an area which was particularly dangerous, and this area was known as being full of marauding gangs of bandits and robbers which would need the protection of the Roman soldiers. Here's a little comment uh, from the book Archaeology and Bible History. It says, oh, the journey between Perga and Antioch, due to a number of archaeological discoveries, have been made in this region. Ramsey points out the number of inscriptions in that area refer to the armed police and soldiers who kept peace in this area. This may be the reason why John Mark went home, because they had to traverse this area, which is shown by inscriptions that require the protection of armed soldiers. Perhaps the prospect of an encounter with violent brigands helped John Mark decide to return home at this juncture. Remember Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, 26 and 27 says, I've been in dangers of robbers, dangers in the wilds, many sleepless nights in hunger and in thirst. And of course that reference relates to the journeys earlier preceding the third journey. So it would possibly relate to this uh, particular incident. Now again, just let's wind back and think about Barnabas. Too hard for Barnabas? Like this is an area that needed protection, physical protection, by some of the Roman soldiers as you walked along these roads to, to another country because there's so many robbers up in the hills. You need physical protection. And Barnabas stuck with the Apostle Paul. He slogs on. He's probably mulling over this sort of disconnection that just happened with John Mark. I mean, it'd be so disappointing beginning of the mission work and John Mark defects. His family he probably feels a bit embarrassed about that. He's mulling over this 
and he's going through some dangerous territory, I think it illustrates one thing. Barnabas wasn't a wimp. It wasn't just a shadow of the Apostle Paul. He walked alongside the Apostle Paul. There were hardships ahead of them, and he faced them with the Apostle Paul. He was every man as equal as the Apostle Paul in his determination. Tough, tough journey. And I get that in the narrative because in verse 14, uh, at the end it says they sat down. I think, yeah, there was some physical refreshment there. It says, verse 14, when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. I sort of get that sense of release that this has been a tough journey uh, and we get a bit of time to at least sit down and present the gospel message. Of course, well, verse 16 says, then Paul stood up. So again, it gives an illustration of the physical ability and the determination and the energy of the Apostle Paul. Scarcely sat down, Paul standing up again to preach the gospel. And Barnabas, of course, uh, stood up with him. So he gives a little bit of a, a, a talk there in that synagogue. And you'll notice he emphasises, I'm just going to switch across the Apostle Paul for a minute, he emphasises the resurrection of Christ. So a phrase worth colouring, it's in verse 30. Uh, God raised him from the dead, and then verse 33, in that he's raised up Jesus again. Verse 34, as concerning, he raised him up from the dead. So again, this was the very essence of the gospel message. This is a unique man that God has raised up, and, and there were witnesses of that particular resurrection. Of course, well, some of the Jews, as we note in verse 41, they rejected this whole preaching campaign. Um, and and Saul, uh, Paul there cites Habakkuk, and he says, you despise us. And so this was a, a turning point where many of the Jewish people, Paul was now recognising this, didn't want to hear about the resurrection of Christ. And of course, he's going to move his message across the Gentiles. But we want to pick up the point about Barnabas, because that's where our focus is. And here in verse 43, we've got this particular comment. Now, when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, both of them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Now, I see Barnabas' signature in this. Barnabas wasn't silent in verse 43. The record does not say, and so they followed the Apostle Paul, and they listened to the Apostle the great encourager, and of course superseded this morning by the emblems on the table before us, the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, who of course sits at the right hand of the Father and continues to watch over our lives and through the means and providential hand of the angels encourages us and guides us in that right pathway. So this morning we want to have a look and continue this uh, story of Barnabas and see uh, his persistency as he laboured together with the Apostle Paul. Just winding back of course to Friday night, uh, there was, you will be aware of the disappointment, of course, that both the Apostle Paul and Barnabas would have had with the defection, as it were, of John Mark as he turned back uh, to Jerusalem. And Barnabas, although he was connected because John Mark was the cousin of Barnabas, he had to make a decision there in that moment to continue with the Apostle Paul. And it was going to be a very, very difficult journey. We, we sort of painted the picture of, of the robbers and the bandits that were known historically to be in that area operating. So it was dangerous territory for these two men to progress through. 
And the record of the journeys of the Apostle Paul say that he went from Perga in Pamphylia up to Antioch where there was a strong resistance and they were, they were both thrown out of that town and they continued on now to um, Iconium. Well, that was a walk of 153 kilometres. I guess in all the uh, narrative that we often read, we forget the distances that are being travelled. So it would have been a very uh, difficult journey, as we say, through uh, a very troublesome territory. And the Apostle Paul, in his last writing, actually makes reference of that particular element of the journey. See Timothy 3, verse 11, he says to Timothy, you know the persecutions and the inflictions which came to me, and he geographically points them out, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. So in his last writing, the Apostle Paul recollects from his memory this particular element of the journey, and he says to Timothy, you'll know how tough it was in that area. Well, if it was tough for the Apostle Paul, and he writes about that, how tough was it for Barnabas? And again, sometimes we, we lose the connection of this faithful companion, this persistent man, who was the great encourager, who walked alongside the Apostle Paul through this dangerous territory. And so we come to our section this morning from Acts chapter 14, and particularly just starting at verse 1, because there's a very interesting comment that connects Barnabas and Paul together. So in this journey, of course, uh, although John Mark had left, uh, they continued together. So Acts 14 and verse 1 says, It came to pass in Iconium that they both went together into the synagogue. And I think there's a, a wonderful underlining of that whole spirit there. There was no fractious relationship between Barnabas and Paul. They served God together. And here, just in that little phrase, they both went together, is reminiscent of the service of many companions who, who supported each other. Uh, Peter and John, in John 20 and verse 4, says they both ran together. There's no competition between Peter and John. They just heard the news of the, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, John, being a little bit more fit, uh, reached the tomb a little bit before Peter. But there was, there was not a competition. It's just saying they both went together because they were enlivened with this news of the resurrection of Christ. They wanted to embrace that. And, of course, Genesis 22 and verse 6, same phrase, they both went together. Well, this was Isaac and his father Abraham. So in this little phrase, embedded in this phrase, is the whole aspect of a working and a cooperation together. And so there was this dual effort between Paul and Barnabas as they pressed forward to present the gospel in a very powerful way. And that really filters down to us as an ecclesia, as brothers and sisters, we work together as a team. You know, I guess... Sometimes in life there are a little bit of differences in the way the ecclesia operates. But in the long run, we have one aim and one aspiration, and that's to welcome each other into the kingdom on the other side of the judgment seat. And Paul wrote about that on several occasions. In Philippians 1.27, he says to the brothers and sisters, Stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And that's really our aim as we considered our subject over the week, uh, to develop that spirit of Barnabas, so that it filters not only in our own domestic operations, but also uh, through our interaction with our brothers and sisters. And so we'll notice that that presentation continues in verse 3. It says, Long time therefore abode they, plural, not just Paul, not just say, well, Paul spoke boldly. It says, Long time therefore abode they, speaking boldly in the Lord. So again, we've been highlighting that Barnabas wasn't just a passive observer. He wasn't just standing on the side, but this dual presentation of the gospel made it particularly bold. 
So this word bold is very interesting in the Greek, I won't pronounce it, but it means to be frank in utterance, to be confident in spirit and demeanour. So here are these two men presenting it very powerfully. Uh, again, in, just back in chapter 13, verse 46, uh, we have the same description. Paul and Barnabas waxed bold. And that same uh, word is used of Apollos. And he was a very eloquent and a very bold speaker. So there's this duality with Paul and Barnabas that they were both powerful presentations uh, when they presented the gospel. And that was in the midst of very difficult circumstances. So our, our theme for this morning is Barnabas as a persistent preacher, helping and supporting the Apostle uh, Paul. So one of the uh, things that I've done, particularly in chapter 4, is I've coloured the word they, because I just want to be reminded when I read this narrative of the support and the help that Barnabas gave to Paul. So, of course, it's there in verse 1, the word they. It's in verse 3, we've already said that, they abode they. Again, at the end of verse 3, the, the wonders done by their hands. At the end of verse 4, we've got an interesting uh, comment, which I'll unpack in a minute, but it says, in part with the apostles, that's Paul and Barnabas, in chapter 5, to use them despitefully, verse 6, they were aware of it, verse 7, and they preached the gospel. So together again, this narrative is underlining the supportive emphasis of Barnabas. And you'll note, as we said, they, they both provided miracles. End of verse 3 says, signs and wonders done by their hands. So we don't often associate Barnabas with miracles. But here's an indication he had, had, the, had a range, possibly the full range, of the Holy Spirit gifts. He was also able to do signs and wonders. Now that little phrase is unique for the great work of the apostles. It's in Acts 2 verse 43. It says, Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. So it's a phrase that connects to the original presentation by the apostles themselves. And again in Acts 5 verse 12, By the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders. There's that phrase, wrought among the people. Now what's interesting about that? is at the end of verse 4, Barnabas is elevated and described as an apostle. Now we might just say, well, that's one cent and they were selected by the Holy Spirit, and that's true enough. But in verse 4 and in verse 14 of this chapter, Barnabas is described as an apostle. Now the interesting thing is this is the only time, this is the only time in the whole of the record when that term apostle is applied to someone outside the realm of the original apostles. When you look up the word apostle, uh, it always relates to the original apostles, except in verse 4 and 14 of this particular chapter. So it sort of elevates really Barnabas' association, his connection, uh, almost alongside the original apostles, because, of course, he was cooperating with uh, the apostle Paul. Well, it says in verse 3 that uh, it says particularly long time they abode with the brothers and sisters, with the, you'll notice at the end of verse 2, with the brethren. Uh, one wonders, when they sort of fled from Antioch, they were quickly sort of repelled from Antioch, why they abode for such a long time here in Iconium? Why not move to a, another area where there'd be better results? And that is the point, that's the connecting point to the brethren there. Because you'll notice in verse 2, there was an assault and there was violence meted out against the brethren in verse 2. So because of the Barnabas spirit, Paul and Barnabas stayed there a long time to give encouragement. You'll notice there's a little signature statement by Barnabas there in verse 3. 
which gave testimony unto, and here's that signature statement, the word of his grace. Right, we've seen that in previous occasions where uh, Barnabas came to the original Antioch Ecclesia and he observed and witnessed the word and the growth of grace there. So here it is again here in this little ecclesia that was growing. And so if there was ever a time for encouragement and support, Paul and Barnabas abode in that place despite the resistance to help develop and give direction to the brothers and sisters. Well, it came to a point, of course, in verse 5 where it became physical and it, it records in verse 5 there was an assault both of the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to stone them. We find that hard to connect to because as Brother Bob said, we, we meet here in freedom. Uh, we have uh, a beautiful opportunity to gather together to open the word without any harassment from the authorities. So it's a little bit hard for us to connect to this physical onslaught. But sort of Barnabas was associated in all of this and, you know, when you paint the picture, he could have suggested to Paul that, well, maybe, Paul, you're being a, a bit, little bit provocative. Maybe you need to back off with the message a little bit and not to present it uh, in the face of these people. We, we can do that in a quiet way. And, of course, there may be occasions when that counsel is fairly wise. But it is important, of course, to present the gospel with robustness and with the original foundational message. And that's really probably a challenge to us today as the social conditions around us change and we sort of start to morph our message into making it, well, what we think is a little bit more palatable. So we do need to present the gospel and its foundation principles, which makes us unique as Christadelphians. But whatever the feelings of Barnabas, he stood by the Apostle Paul, he accepted the stresses and demands of preaching the gospel. We don't read of any complaint by Barnabas. And, of course, I think for all of us in the ecclesial context, uh, we need to be accepting sometimes of the, the bluntness with which other brother and sisters make a comment, perhaps about us or perhaps about somebody else. Bluntness, I hope, is done in a, in a nice way, but sometimes it helps to apprehend the apathy and the comfort with which we become accustomed. Someone makes a, a fairly strong comment and it wakes us up and we think, well, yeah, maybe I do need to recalibrate or, or have a think about that particular aspect of life. So verse 5 says there was an assault. Uh, it's the Greek word hormi, and it means a violent attempt. That's the translation of diagram. A violent attempt. Same word is used of our Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 18.32. It says he was delivered to the Gentiles. They mocked and spitefully entreated him and spat on him. So you can see the, the level of the violence. And it seems strange in our society that, that people would become so aggressive. I mean, in today's society, we talk about our beliefs and the aspect of the truth and people shrug their shoulders and say, oh, that's fine, you know, it's lovely, it's your opinion. So we don't have this sort of physical oppression that these men had to deal with. So it says, you know, they, they, they fled. Barnabas was putting his life on the line with the Apostle Paul. And again, you know, when we characterise the Apostle Paul, he's out there, he's vigorous, he's determined, he's enthusiastic, he'll do anything. Uh, Barnabas didn't back off. He didn't get to this point and say, well, you know what, John marked effect and I'm, I'm sort of feeling the pressure now and I might back off as well. None of that. He continued persistently with the Apostle Paul, putting his life on the line for the preaching of the gospel. And so there it says in verse 7, there they preached the gospel. They continued. They were fleeing all the way, but they continued to preach the gospel. We had an incident some years ago when we went to China. I still remember this 
in China, of course, it's quite oppressive and you do have to be very sensitive and very careful how you conduct yourself. You can't just sort of go out in the street and uh, start proclaiming the gospel. So the brothers and sisters normally would come in a very unobtrusive way to where we would be located, which would be often in a hotel. Uh, and there we would sort of have fellowship together, we'd have a memorial service together um, and quite a wonderful experience. And I remember on this particular occasion, we had a couple of sisters in Guangzhou and um, they were so excited to see us, they said, oh, can we sing some hymns together? It would be such a wonderful time for us because normally we're on our own and we had Brother Colin and Sister Kerry Warner with us. So with the six of us, they said this would be a great time to sing hymns. Well, we were a little bit apprehensive because we're in a hotel and we're thinking if you know, our melodious tones echo down the corridors, it might sort of uh, make people come up and wonder what's going on. So we thought, well, maybe we'll sing together, that's fine, but let's choose a hymn that sort of we can sing a little bit softly. You know, life is the time to serve the Lord or something. And in the end, the sister said, no, can we sing the hymn, Crown Him With Many Crowns? And we're thinking, oh, wow, this is going to be interesting. So sort of we burst out with gusto, wondering what was going to be the impact. But on that particular occasion, I wondered about, you know, the courage and the beautiful two sisters that were with us that were uninhibited in the way we want to sing together you know, whatever the effect it was going to be or the consequences. So I'm reminded of that, of course, uh, when I read this little statement, they preached the gospel, they were uninhibited, Paul and Barnabas, as they presented that. Now, what's interesting, when they came to Lystra, in verse 8, we've got a particular word there that's really important, it's the word certain. It says, a certain man, he's a cripple from his mother's womb. You know what's interesting, when you come across to chapter 16 and verse 1, he's at Lystra as well. Same term is used. Chapter 16 and verse 1 says they came to, they're on the return journey from Derby back to Lystra, and here it comes again, interesting. Behold, a certain disciple named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman. I must think there's a connecting point between the narrative there in chapter 14 and this incident in chapter 16, linked by that word certain, a particular. And, of course, what happens back in chapter 14 and verse 9 is that the same man heard Paul speak and he steadfastly beheld him, perceiving that he had faith to be healed. Right? It's very possible that this young man who was a cripple was Timothy. And that word healed there, the Greek word sozo, is used 120 times in the New Testament. 94 times it's used the word saved. Right? So not just a physical healing process is a very broader word. In fact, the first time that word is used is in Matthew 1.21. It's the message uh, to the angel to Joseph about Mary, and the angel says, she will bring forth a son, you will call his name Jesus, he shall save his people from their sins. So there's where that first Greek word is used. It's used in a broader context, not just like a healing process, but a saving process. And again, for example, Luke 19, verse 10, the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. Same Greek word, sozo. So a broader aspect than just a healing aspect, a saving aspect as well. And that was always the message of our Lord Jesus Christ in the method. When he went about healing, it was not just a temporary moment, but there was an additional support and encouragement that people should seek the way of salvation and the way of life. And, of course, if that's the case here at verse 8 in Lystra, where this layman is healed, um, then, of course, he became a great follower of the Apostle Paul. On the next journey that the Apostle Paul came through, 
He selected Timothy because he was held in reputation. Now, what's really nice, I think, again, in verse 10, the Apostle Paul says with a loud voice, stand upright. Right, so he's lame. It's very difficult for him to stand. Apostle Paul says, stand upright. Look what happens next. And this is, again, the spirit of Timothy. <laughs> uh, it says, uh, and, and he leaped, and he leaped up. He leaped up and walked. An indication, perhaps, of his enthusiasm and that surge of energy that he felt through his body. Indicative almost of, you know, this whole following aspect of the Apostle Paul. Now, there's a similar example back in Acts chapter 3. Remember, Peter and John went to the temple and there was this lame man and he wanted, to be, he wanted some arms, some donations. And Peter and John said, look, we haven't got any silver. Um, and here's the record, but such as I have, I give unto you, in the name of Christ Jesus, rise up and walk. And then a couple of verses later it says, And he, leaping up, stood and walked, and entered into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. So I have this amazing picture of here's the Pharisees all sort of hanging around with all their grim faces, they're grumpy, they're grieved because of all this preaching effort. And sort of in the background, there's this man just leaping and jumping and praising God in the temple, just in the background there. And such a contrast between the formality and the ritualism of the, the Pharisees and just the joy of these people who are being healed. That's our joy, brothers and sisters. You know, I, I like to think just the other side of the judgment seat will be leaping, um, you know, as Isaiah 35 says. Uh, and just rejoicing, there will be that physical element just of freedom and immortality and a pure mind, just such a wonderful experience. So uh, for this particular young man, of course, possibly Timothy, uh, what an amazing circumstance. And the people of Lystra respond in verse 11. Quite a different result from the previous gospel preaching efforts of Paul and Barnabas. We get that in life, don't we? I'm sure you as the same as us. We've had special efforts, no one's turned up. Or, of course, we've had a great handful of people that have turned up and they're all enthusiastic. So verse 11, uh, they lifted up their voice in the speech of Lyconia and said, the gods have come down to us. Also, they're in their native dialect and it took some time with all the, the hubble and the bubble of conversation for Paul and Barnabas to understand what was going on. The people were convening a ceremony to uphold the power of these two men and they were being incarnated as though they're gods. Well, this was sort of not the way the, the message was supposed to go. Paul and Barnabas were horrified at that particular thought and they wanted the people to stop. Now, what's interesting is the description of Barnabas. All right, the description of Barnabas in verse 12. They called Barnabas, and unfortunately the King James Version from the Vulgate is the sort of Latin Roman gods, which loses effect. But the most modern translations, if you have the ESV, you'll have Zeus. They called Barnabas Zeus, who was the principal Greek god. And Paul they called, in the Greek Hermes, who was Zeus's spokesman. Right, so this is quite interesting, this observation from the people. It wasn't Barnabas was in a shadow and Paul was out there. They actually named Barnabas as Zeus, the god of gods, the most foremost one, the king of gods. Why did he worship? Temple to Zeus was all over the Greek area there. It was the god of sky and thunder. So it would appear that, uh, we have to paint the picture a little bit, 
that, uh, well, as far as Zeus was concerned, he was always depicted as a very regal person, sturdy, powerful figure. If you have a look at some of the archaeological uh, effects, he's there with sort of a beard and he looks quite a strong character. So when we step back from this, it seems evident that Barnabas' appearance was more imposing than the Apostle Paul's. And so he was looked upon as Zeus, the chief god, and Paul's sort of public eloquence led them to conclude that he was the messenger of Zeus. And we note, of course, the response in verse 14, and notice the way the names have been inverted, because normally it's Paul's coming first, but here it says, when the apostles, there's that word again, Barnabas and Paul heard it, uh, they, they sort of gave direction that there is only one true God. So just stepping back, that's an interesting observation itself. And again, what we're trying to do through our special effort is sort of highlight the supportive work of Barnabas. He wasn't a shadow. He was sort of alongside and equal to the Apostle Paul. And in this just observation of the citizens of um, Lystra, that, that seemed to be quite evident. Well, then we have another incident in verse 14. It says, and there came to the certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium. You know, Antioch's 244 kilometres away. Antioch is 244 kilometres away, and there are people coming from Antioch all the way to oppose Paul and Barnabas. I mean, I, I, can't, I, I can barely comprehend the ferocity and the resistance of the opposition of these people. Unbelievable. So they're coming all this way, and they single out Paul for an attack, Maybe because, as we've said, he had more to say, described as the messenger of the gods, or maybe because he was weaker in physique. You remember the Corinthians sort of talked about that in a disparaging way. They said his bodily presence is weak. So maybe Barnabas was fairly stout and forthright, and Paul was, you know, a little bit thinner, and so they sort of picked on the Apostle Paul. Well, we know from the record there, sadly, verse 19, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, and dumped him down there as dead. So where was Barnabas in all this? You know, I, I guess he was protecting and supporting and shielding his brothers and his sisters. But just imagine for a moment how Barnabas felt. You know, these friendships forged in the heat of presenting the gospel in difficult and aggressive territory, that's a friendship that's, you know, long-lasting. And all of a sudden, Bar uh, Paul is stoned, he's dragged out, you know, blood running down, bruises... Uh, he's unconscious, he's not breathing, barely breathing. Can you imagine how Barnabas felt in that moment? They all thought he was, that Paul was dead. It would be shock, stress. Barnabas would have been thinking, well, wait a minute, the Holy Spirit selected Paul and I to be presented as the gospel. Why would this happen? And that's the story of our life, is that sometimes we have circumstances that we think this doesn't make a lot of sense at all. But, of course, there was Barnabas protecting his brothers and sisters. And the record in verse 20 says the disciples stood round about him. I can imagine Barnabas gathering to them together. I mean, they're not standing there indifferently. Uh, I think they would have possibly almost formed a circle around him and there was a combination of, we would imagine, prayer and protection perhaps. Now, James chapter 5 talks about, is any sick? Let the elders of the ecclesia pray over this particular person and the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And perhaps that happened with Barnabas leading that prayer for God to be merciful in this situation. So they stopped there and they encouraged the 
young disciples, young brothers and sisters, as it were, to come to terms with what had happened and that they too would be uh, partakers of the affliction of the gospel. Those scars and the bruises and the battering that Paul had left its impact, I think emotionally, obviously, on the Apostle Paul, but certainly physical. A little bit later on in Galatians 6 and 17, he says, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, the Ecclesian Galatia, of which Lister was a member, would have known that well and truly. And a few years later, when he wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11.25, he said, once I was stoned. Well, that's this incident here. So the, remember the Apostle Paul in Corinthians says, look, I went through all these physical afflictions. They impacted me. So, you know, I, I certainly put my time into, and my body into preaching the gospel. And he makes a comment, once was I stoned. Well, that's this incident here. So he certainly remembered it. And for us, you know, perhaps that's in some ways challenging because we all talk about the pressures of this age. And it's true enough, we do have that sort of mental anxiety and the pressures that we face. But nothing like these two brethren, Paul and Barnabas. And you can imagine after a night's rest, it, it talks about uh, that the next day they sort of rose and they moved on. So you can imagine the uh, journey Barnabas would have possibly had to assist the Apostle Paul. I mean, I don't think you could be stoned one day and just sort of jump up and <laughs> leap as it were and away you go. So he would have had to support uh, the Apostle Paul physically, emotionally, mentally as well. Uh, and, and that's something that we do as brothers and sisters, don't we? we? We need to play our part in that particular role. So verse 21 talks about when they preached the gospel to that city, they taught many, they returned again. So they went off to Derby and then they returned again, surprisingly, back along the pathway. Now here's the point. Paul's hometown, Tarsus, is 125 k's away from Derby. They could have returned, you know, as they're limping their way through almost, well, particularly Paul. Barnabas could have suggested to Paul, hey, listen, I think we've done enough. Tarsus is just around the corner here. Let's just keep going this way. But no, and this is the persistency, these, these two beautiful, amazing brethren, there's just a little ecclesia that's being, little ecclesias being established. They said, let's go back and make sure they're all okay. <laughs> amazing. So they both turned back and retraced their steps. And I think obviously that's possibly the influence of Barnabas, the great encourager who knew the importance of reinforcement. It's, it's, it's our Sunday mornings for us, isn't it, brothers and sisters? This is reinforcement to us. It's a cycle, it's a routine, it's a good cycle, it's a good routine. Because if we go without a Sunday morning, then we can put ourselves certainly in spiritual danger. So again, you want to colour the word they in from verse 21 through. Verse 21, when they had preached the gospel, they returned to Lystra, verse 23. When they ordained elders in every ecclesia and had prayed with fasting, they commended them, verse 24. After they passed through, they came to Pamphylia, verse 25. They preached the word, they went down to Italia. They had been recommended, they fulfilled, verse 27. They were come, they rehearsed. Uh, so, you know, there's a very strong textual emphasis on the dual presentation support, Barnabas and, and, and the Apostle Paul working together. And, of course, the exhortation in verse 22 is always very powerful. Um, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and through much tribulation we should enter in the kingdom of God. Well, that word um, exhorting, of course, 
is the nickname of Barnabas, Paraclesis, the encourager. All right? So there it is there in that verse. That word exhorting is the word parakleo. And that's Barnabas's name from Acts 4, verse 36 and 11, verse 23. He's named the comforter, the paracletus. And here's Barnabas's word. Coming back through, uh, restating the brothers and sisters, re-encouraging them. And we need that, don't we, brothers and sisters? We can't survive without the word. We need that re-encouragement, that booster, uh, and that is very helpful for us. You need to continue through much tribulation. Wow, that exhortation certainly echoes down to us. We feel very privileged in the environment that we worship God in. Sometimes, and, and particularly depending on the way that the social changes happen, maybe we will be challenged physically. Maybe we will have to go off to prison for our beliefs. It's not unknown. Certainly by first century brothers and sisters, that was the case. So really, Paul and Barnabas encouraged them in three aspects. Continue in the faith, stand fast and persevere, and, and that echoes down to us. And, you know, what, what a wonderful gesture of Sister Lydia and Brother Joe for their, their faithful service, 60-plus years in the truth. These are contemporary examples that are helpful and inspiring to us. So Paul and Barnabas say, continue, stick to it, persevere. Secondly, they say, you've got to be willing to um, cope with trial and with tribulation. And again, we just look at our own lives and look back on our experiences. We see some elements of that. And finally, of course, that last phrase in verse 22, the kingdom of God. There's a focus. So continue, cope, and focus on the kingdom of God. Well, then Paul and Barnabas head back home which is, uh, really would have been wonderful for them. They were away for about a year. And you could imagine the excitement of their home ecclesia uh, in verse 27 and 28, the excitement as Paul and Barnabas come back after the commission that they were given. I can imagine they'd have a special effort, a special fraternal. They share their experiences. Paul and Barnabas had lots of stories to tell them. And now they're going to sort of, well, they're going to encourage their home ecclesia because look at verse 26 and 27. And notice the focus here. Thence they sailed to Antioch from whence they had been recommended to, and here it comes, the grace of God for the work they fulfilled. When they were come, they gathered the ecclesia together and rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith. So see the emphasis on God? It's not about their story. It's not about them. It's the grace of God. It's what God had done and that he had opened a door of faith. What a wonderful perspective these two brothers had. There was no pride in what they've done. You know, oh, we, you know, we had a tough time, but we persevered. None of that. It was all about, well, what God has done in our lives. And that's the story of our life, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Yes, we have experiences that we, we like to talk about, and that's great. We need conversations to be had. But in the end, we're here this morning because of the grace of God that's been extended to us as well. And just as Paul and Barnabas needed each other, so we need each other in these difficult days. It's why we have ecclesias. It's why we have fellowship, so that we can rejoice together in the grace of God. So some questions for ourselves as we come to the emblems now and as we think about our own lives. In a difficult environment, do we work together as a team? Uh, now that might even relate to husband, wife, children, family, by extension ecclesia as well. Do we work as a team? Because there's Paul and Barnabas, tough times, tough brethren sticking together. Um, are we passive observers or participating supporters? Question. 
you know, do we, do we volunteer when there's things to be done in the ecclesia? Or we just sort of stand back and think, I hope someone else takes that because, look, I like to be passive. <laughs> um, how do we feel when others are suffering in the truth? You know, so for Barnabas in that moment, as he looked down at the body of the Apostle Paul, barely breathing, how did he feel? How do we connect to other brothers and sisters in their trials and difficulties? You know, Paul talks about rejoicing with those that rejoice and weeping with those that weep. Um, do we have a, a persistent spirit to endure difficult times and do we understand and accept that tribulation is an important part of the process because sometimes we sort of get into a zone where we think why me I don't understand this no one else is having the depth of trial that I've ha I'm having we, we've got to comprehend providentially the grace of God working in our lives and Paul was taught that you know he had he had some difficulty that he prayed three times to be relieved of God says, no, that's where my strength is actually seen and forged and made. And finally, do we give God the glory and focus on his operation in our lives? And that's why we're here this morning, to think about the service of this amazing man, the great encourager, supersedes, of course, Barnabas in an amazing way. So there, here are the symbols of, of blood and wine. Uh, this man accomplished more than any other man ever could. He's a man who was not just a passive observer, our Lord Jesus Christ, but he was fully involved in supporting his disciples right through that garden of Gethsemane. Upon the cross, he looked down upon his mum and asked John spiritually to take care and give advice and counsel and support to his mother. Support, encouragement, just exuding out of this man, advising others to continue in the way. And our Lord Jesus Christ lived that phrase, didn't he, through much tribulation. He went through that garden of Gethsemane, he gave himself in the ultimate sacrifice of death and now he sits on the right hand of the Father, not in a passive sense, but the ultimate definition of the Barnabas spirit, we might say. Because Paul writes about it this way. We don't have a high priest who's untouched. He's not unfeeling about our infirmities and our weaknesses. In every point, he's tested. He's been tested like we are, of course, but without sin. And so Paul says, let's come boldly before that throne, that seat, that dwelling place, that presence, that centre of grace, he says, so that we too can find mercy and grace to help build and to encourage us in our lives. Here, now, he says, in this our moment of need. They're wonderful, encouraging words by the Apostle Paul as he directs our focus upon our Lord Jesus Christ, the great encourager. Let's take the essence of the service of these great men and apply it in our own lives as we walk and as we wait for the kingdom of God. I think we come to a pivotal moment now in the life of Barnabas uh, where we see that spirit being extended to the point where he would stand up to the great Apostle Paul and say, look, I think we need to, do, to give young John Mark, brother John Mark, a second chance. Uh, this was the spirit of Barnabas again uh, seen in a most excellent moment where he had the courage and the fortitude to even stand up against the Apostle Paul because of the values of reconciliation and renewal that he believed in.
So it certainly is a, a highlight, I think, as far as the life of Barnabas is concerned. So just winding back uh, chronologically, of course, we're AD 51. Uh, we're two years later than the um, mission work which the Apostle Paul and Barnabas went on. We recognise in the end of chapter 14, verse 27 and 28, uh, the enthusiasm and the joy that filtered through the ecclesia as Barnabas and Paul returned with great news about more brothers and sisters in isolated foreign lands. And the ecclesia rejoiced in that particular incident and those events. But now in chapter uh, 15 and verse 1, we're introduced to a narrative that sort of adds a little bit of stress to the whole situation. Uh, there's actually some bullying tactics going on because chapter 15 of verse 1 says, certain men uh, came down from Judea and taught the brethren saying, you've got to be circumcised after the manner of Moses. So here, as we've said, chronologically, we're moving through. There's um, a division here between Paul and Barnabas about John Mark. It's AD uh, 51 here, and they're about to embark on, well, they were about to embark on their second journey. But, of course, uh, as we said, there's some elders, there's prestigious men of the sect of the Pharisees who became brethren, that they still had the remnant of that particular position about the law of Moses that they were clinging on to. And this was something that was going to feature, sadly, through the ecclesia in these early transitional years. So you'll notice here, uh, we've highlighted in chapter 15 and verse 1, this word men. So it doesn't use the word brethren. You'll notice even in built into the narrative in, in, in chapter 1, there's almost a contrast. It says certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren. Well, they were all brethren. But, of course, it's illustrating, of course, um, really the approach of some of these uh, elders from Jerusalem who weren't really treating the ecclesia in Antioch with right consideration. And so th there's that difference in the description. Certain men. Now, what is particularly interesting about Acts chapter 15, we've got this note here, there are more references to brethren in this chapter than any other in the New Testament. And it illustrates the importance of relationship in resolving differences. So there's this big Jerusalem conference that's going to happen. There's a bit of a problem, so it's believed, by the sect of the Pharisees, the, the brotherhood there, um, a small splinter group, we might even say, with what's going on in the ecclesia of Antioch. And so the record says they came down. Well, geographically, um, interestingly, it's not down at all. It's up on a map. Um, but, of course, from perhaps a spiritual viewpoint, they thought, well, here we are centred in the ecclesia of Jerusalem and we've got to go down to Antioch because... You know, there's a lot of Gentiles there, and not, they're not being respectful to the law of Moses and to the, um, the edict that circumcision is an absolute necessary for salvation. Well, that, that's particularly strange. And so, interestingly, as we've said, um, and it's worth colouring in, to be honest, this word brethren right through chapter 15, because here's where brethren come together to seek some resolution. And, of course, it was found by the spirit of Barnabas that certainly prevailed on that conference together. Well, even in the term uh, of verse 1 there, it says they taught the brethren. I mean, this ecclesia had been uh, growing and nurturing and flourishing for some time now under the hands, as we saw, of teachers and prophets, uh, prestigious men who had a great foundation in the word of God. So this ecclesia in Antioch had been growing for some time. But now there's this schism that's being introduced because there were certain elements in the Jerusalem ecclesia that believed that circumcision was an absolute must. And so that's what they're saying there in verse 1. It's an absolute must for salvation. One writer put it this way. He said, uh, it was one thing to accept the occasional God-fearing Gentile into the ecclesia uh, who already had a sympathy with Jewish ways. It was quite another to welcome large number of Gentiles who had no regard for the law and no intention of keeping it. 
So there was this sort of element in Jerusalem, and obviously this is a culture that had been in place for hundreds and thousands of years, really, from the law of Moses. So they were finding it hard to do this transition from the ritual of keeping the law of Moses. And so they felt, um, at the end of verse 1 there, except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot, you cannot be saved. Now, you want to make a link, I've done this in my Bible, circle the word you cannot be saved and put it straight across to verse 11. All right? Because here's the statement in verse 11. We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. All right? So on one hand, we've got you can't be saved. And of course, on the other side, we've got we shall be saved. So it immediately uh, links us across to this whole element of the, the mercy, the kindness, the forgiveness, the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Well, you know, this is a bit of a problem because verse 2 says that there was uh, no small dissension and disputation. Well, there's a, there's a few big words in there. Uh, dissension is the word stasis, where we get our word anastasis, uh, a, a resurrection, a, role, a standing forth. All right, so there's, there's a standing against here. And the word is used to describe, obviously, a quite a serious controversy that was mushrooming in the ecclesia. It's the word uproar in Acts 19 and verse 40. Remember Paul came into the Ephesian uh, amphitheatre there, the greatest Diana of the Ephesians, there's an uproar there, 5,000 voices reverberating through this amphitheatre. Well, that same word uproar is the word here, um, dissension. Well, the other word, of course, is a disputation. So, you know, we're adding to this whole uh, particular problem, disputation. And the Greek word means an intense questioning or a dissection of the arguments or a great reasoning. So there's a big, big issue mushrooming in the Jerusalem Ecclesia. And there's a bit of antagonism against the Antioch Ecclesia, and this needs to be resolved. Now, you'll notice twice in verse 2 the word Barnabas is mentioned. All right? So wherefore Paul and Barnabas is there to term that Paul and Barnabas. So we're introducing this inter-ecclesial consultation process in which Barnabas is already a prominent figure. I know Paul's mentioned there, obviously, but I'm just you know, emphasising that Barnabas is in the thick of it and he's resisting and refusing their contention uh, and by, by their maintenance of the requirement of circumcision. Now, Barnabas, we might say, is a big player in this particular aspect of reconciliation because he was a Levite he had an in-depth knowledge of the word of God and he had the capacity to resist the experts in the law of Moses. So remember, winding back to our first study, we almost glossed over the point that just said, and he was a Levite. Well, now when we come to this picture in Acts chapter 15, it's particularly important because he was educated, he was a teacher, he was a Levite, he had a full knowledge of what the law of Moses was all about. And, of course, he held a very accurate view of what the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ all involved. So we see now a maturing process of Barnabas. Remember we had a look at Galatians chapter 2, where Paul stood back in amazement and he said, I can't believe it that Barnabas was carried away with much dissimulation. There was a time when Barnabas stood on the other side of the fence. He was carried away with this uh, Pharisee element of the brotherhood. And Paul said, I can't believe he stood with them. Now we see a maturing process Barnabas isn't standing with them anymore. He's standing with the Apostle Paul. And so there's this uh, joint effort again, as we've just seen consistently, this uh, firm spirit between Barnabas and Paul as they stood for the right elements of the truth. So here in Acts chapter 15 and verse 2, you've got Barnabas there twice. And of course, as they come down, what's uh, particularly wonderful here, they're, they're on their way down and... Um, They've been chosen from as delegates from the Antioch, Antioch Ecclesia. And so verse 3 describes them 
being brought on their way by the ecclesia. They pass through Phoenice and Samaria, and so they're on their way down. And you'll notice there, and I've got this coloured in in green in my verse 3, they caused great joy among all the brethren. What a contrast. What a contrast. Here this conflict is mushrooming up in the Jerusalem ecclesia. There's antagonism. We might even say there's a bit of a bullying going on. But when Barnabas and Paul come down, the end of verse 3, there's not negative rumours and innuendo they're throwing amongst the brotherhood. They come down and they're causing great joy to the brethren. Doesn't that show an amazing positive spirit? And here you see again this emphasis here in verse 3 and verse 4, uh, this plurality. Their way, they passed through, they caused, they were come, they were received, they declared all, all that God had done with them. So again, they're standing firm in their friendship. And this wasn't just a trivial issue for Barnabas, otherwise he would have given way for the sake of peace and saying, look, let's work it all out and let's, you know, we want to follow the pathway of peace. Barnabas realised this was a fundamental issue and he was going to oppose it and he was going to stand with the Apostle Paul. And their points were going to be that if it was necessary for a Gentile to be uncircumcised, then the death of the Lord Jesus Christ was insufficient. I mean, this is a massive point, isn't it, really? If it required circumcision for salvation, then the death of Christ was insufficient. And for Barnabas, he was, he was going to fudge on that fundamental principle. And not only that, of course, with Paul, he travelled many areas on their mission work and brought brothers and sisters into the saving truth. And did that mean, of course, now that they would un, be unsaved and the gospel message, message would have been invalidated? So these were foundation and fundamental principles that Barnabas uh, stood up for. So as we said in verse 3, they caused great joy. It's the work of the encourager. Right? We've seen that threaded through the events of Barnabas's life. Despite the seriousness of the situation, they were still bubbling over with enthusiasm as to what their mission work had accomplished some time before. I mean, we sort of put on a special lecture and by the time a week's gone, we've sort of forgotten about it. Um, but for Barnabas and Paul, this was a substantial point of joy that they wanted to share with many other brothers and sisters. So I guess the question for us, brothers and sisters, is do we have that positive spirit? Um, do we enjoy and uphold what our ecclesia is doing and progressing? You know, are there certain events in our life that we can attach ourselves to that brought us to a spiritual high? I mean, I can think of many Bible schools uh, and areas that I've been in where I've met brothers and sisters and, you know, for a week we've enjoyed fellowship and it's been substantial and it's like a positive highlight in your life. We need those positive highlights in our lives. And um, Beth was just talking to me last night, I think it was, and she was showing a picture to me of the Lismore Ecclesia. And I thought it was rather wonderful that obviously they've gone through a time of great distress, but they're in the Ecclesial Hall. They've got all organised their tables with their food products and other supplies. And above that there's sort of a headline, do all to the glory of God. And she said, oh, isn't it wonderful how they can reach out to the community in the context of preaching the truth. And so, of course, the, the Lismore Ecclesia is using this in a practical way as a gospel outreach as well, which is really wonderful. So, you know, we don't want to be discouraged in the truth. Whatever our circumstances in life are, we want to try the best as we can to maintain a positive spirit. Well, we notice in verse 4, they were received of the Ecclesia. So I just want to make this point, there was no conflict with the apostles, all right? When we read this uh, text, we might think, oh, wow, what's going on here? Jerusalem, Antioch, Ecclesia. No, you know, the apostles fully understood the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they were received of the Ecclesia. No conflict with the apostles at all. They are respected and they are honoured. In fact, you'll notice if you flip over the page and you come to verse 26, there's the commendation of the apostles. Verse uh, 26 
said these are men that have uh, hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So for these men there was, there was great respect and there was great honour as well. And they talk about, of course, the, their beloved brother Paul and Apollos. So from the perspective of the Jerusalem Ecclesia, uh, they were well honoured. Well, when uh, Paul and Barnabas came down to the Jerusalem Ecclesia, of course, the record uh, shows that what they had achieved. And we remember we highlighted this particular aspect, that they highlighted what God had done uh, as far as mission work was concerned. And this was the, the promotion, not so much their own work, but of what God had accomplished in the Ecclesia. And there it is at the end of verse 4, of course. It says, uh, the apostles and the elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. And so that's uh, certainly a, a highlight uh, as far as that was concerned. And that's emphasised right through this particular chapter here. So into verse 4, what God had done. Again in verse 7, uh, God made the choice. Verse 8, and God. Verse 12, what God had wrought. All right, so here's the promotion of, of Paul and Barnabas. Not themselves, but the filtering out work of God to people and the invitation was extended to them for the kingdom. So their emphasis is this is not what we've done. God has put his seal upon this, his guarantee of salvation for these Gentiles. So we notice in verse 5, it says there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees. You can imagine the tension, the anxiety at this conference. They're all there, uh, you know, around a big board table perhaps, and they're going to discuss these things. Here comes the sect of the Pharisees. Um, and now they open up the scriptures and they're going to discuss this. And so uh, these, these men are, are confronting the others and commanding that the law of Moses uh, should be maintained and upheld. And so the apostles all drew together to discuss this. Now I'm not going to go through the particular um, speech, but of course here's the emphasis that I've already said there, verse 7, verse 8 twice, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, as to what God had done. So this is a, a foundational point as the conference is being introduced. But there's really three elements to this discussion here in Jerusalem. So the first one is Peter who stands up and he really talks about the past through the proof of Cornelius that God is accepting of the Gentiles. That's a given, that's an obvious. So Peter stands up and he gives that point. Then Paul and Barnabas stand up and they talk about the present. They say, well, we've just been on mission work and we've seen God's providence. We've got the Antioch and the Galatian Ecclesia. So they talk about the present. And then James stands up and he talks about the future and he cites the future temple which will be raised up, the house of David, a house of prayer for all nations. So in a very beautiful way, past, present and future were all concentrated together in the way that these brethren constructed their um, argument. We notice in verse 12, it says, Then all the multitude kept silence, and notice the order here, gave audience to Barnabas and to Paul. So Barnabas is mentioned first, perhaps he rose to his feet, Paul rose with him, and there they stood together. In once the area, the same area that Barnabas, Barnabas introduced Saul. During the Jerusalem Ecclesia, remember many years before, Saul had come down from Damascus and it was Barnabas' work to introduce him into the Ecclesia, winding back many, many years before. And now here they are standing together in the same firm aspect of the truth because Barnabas was a lover of the brotherhood. And really what they emphasise here is not what we say, it's the results of what we do in life. And God has wrought 
this amazing work of salvation. So they rose jointly and nobody challenged their statement. It was very, very powerful. So as we say, then the discussion continued, of course, and it was summarised by James. And the conclusion was circumcision is not required as a method of salvation under the saving name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Justification was to be by faith. So we come across to verse 25, because it's not our desire to unpack, of course, this particular conversation. We come across to verse 25, where again Barnabas is, is noticed first. And we notice the particular preface to Barnabas's name, the beloved Barnabas. All right? So here's the summary. They're now going to be going back to the ecclesias and saying it's not a requirement of circumcision. Salvation is by grace. So verse 25 says, it seems good to us being assembled with one accord. So this is great. Unity and reconciliation had been achieved. The spirit of Barnabas, we might say, was emanating through that conference. To send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Beautiful little title there. I mean, this could have all fragmented into a lot of argumentation and inter-ecclesial disfellowshipping and all those sorts of things. But in the end, it's a great summary and it's now going to be promoted by the beloved Barnabas and Paul. And you can imagine when they travelled back to the ecclesia in Antioch, what relief, what joy would have sort of been the environment of that ecclesia as they brought back this news that it's by grace and by God's mercy that we are saved and, and the law of Moses is not relevant in the aspect of salvation. And of course, we've got that comment there in verse 31. And Barnabas's name is in here. It says, which when they read, they came back to Antioch, delivered the epistle, which when they read, they rejoiced for the, and here's Barnabas's name, Paracletus. The consolate, what, a, what an unusual word to put in the narrative. When they uh, read that, they rejoiced for the consolation. Well, that's paraclesis. Remember, in our opening study, Barnabas is the son of consolation. Chapter 4, verse 36. That's Barnabas' signature right there. The consolation, the spirit of Barnabas that emanated from this individual and really had distilled right through that Jerusalem conference. And there was reconciliation that was born. Well, you know, it's not a happy ending to this particular chapter. It's a bit like life. You know, as we go through life, it's not always a happy ending. And it's quite unusual and quite astounding that the very chapter that contains the reconciliation of inter-ecclesial affairs and brethren ends up with a fragmentation of a very precious friendship. And that friendship that had been forged in the heat of persecution and affliction and physical harm now was broken up because they saw two different aspects to life. And I guess it illustrates for us how fragile our friendships can really be. Yeah, especially human-made friendships, how fragile they are. Hopefully, you know, the, the friendships that we forge in the truth are substantial, but sometimes there are issues that arise that we see very differently. And here was a fragmentation as far as Paul and Barnabas were concerned. So Paul and Barnabas decide they think it's a good idea to take this news back to the Galatian Ecclesias, to urge them to disconnect from this Judaistic party that was spreading this uh, ridiculous requirement through the ecclesial world. And so Paul and Barnabas were both keen to go back and to visit and to reinforce and to encourage those ecclesias in the freedom that they had in Christ. So as we have in verse 36, there's a conversation between Paul and Barnabas and they said, let's go and visit our brothers in every city where we preach the word and we want to see how they do. Well, that was okay. And Barnabas suggested as well that they should take John Mark. 
So there, verse 37, Barnabas determined to take with him John, whose surname was Mark. So one of the priorities that Barnabas had was that John Mark should not be discouraged in the work that he'd been previously involved in, but he defected from. If Barnabas wanted to give him a second chance, let's rebuild John Mark, let's give him a second chance. He'd done that for the Apostle Paul, hadn't he? Twice. Once when Saul came back to the Jerusalem, Barnabas, Barnabas said to the Ecclesia there, this man has been converted, he's now a brother in Christ. And another time when, when Barnabas went across to Tarsus to get Saul to bring him into the Antioch Ecclesia, Barnabas was a man who gave people second chances. And here he says to Paul, in a sense, Paul, I gave you a couple of chances, let's give John Mark a second chance. And that's a wonderful thing for us, isn't it? Uh, sometimes we do default and sometimes our behaviour is bad. Hopefully, as brothers and sisters, we can recognise that is inherent in all of us and we give one another second chances. And that's the Barnabas spirit. And what's so beautiful in this chapter is Barnabas not only works in ecclesias, not only in inter-ecclesial relationships, he's never too big to forget the needs of individuals. So this whole chapter is all about an inter-ecclesial reconciliation and Barnabas is there, but in the same context, he never forgets about the little individuals that are struggling in life. And I think that's wonderful. You know, in the ecclesia we can get busy and it's a big ecclesia and it's humming and it's thriving and it's doing things and sometimes little individuals get lost. But not for Barnabas. He said, let's give John Mark um, a, a second term. We want to build this brother. We want to nurture him up. Well, Paul wouldn't take any of it. So verse 38 says, Paul said, no, it's not good. I don't want to take that one. I'm going to read from Rotherham's. Rotherham says, but Paul deemed it right. Couldn't even say the name of John Mark. Paul deemed it right as to him who had withdrawn from them, back from Pamphylia, and had not gone with them unto the work, not to be taking with them this man. Quite brutal, really, the way Paul says that. I'm not going to take this man. Couldn't even say his name. And he departed from us. It's the Greek word apostasia. means to fall away or to apostatize, like very strong terms. Well, verse 39 says there was a sharp contention. Again, the Greek word means to, to have a spasm, a convulsion, an uncontrolled outburst. It's hard to imagine, isn't it, between Paul and Barnabas, uh, men with great passion on both sides, and Barnabas with his big heart, you know, that this sort of infraction would take place. But it shows, I think, a really wonderful side of the character of Barnabas. Barnabas had a big heart and he was determined to stand by his values of giving John Mark, an individual, a second chance. And that shows the strength and the character of Barnabas who could stand up against a man with the bigger like the Apostle Paul and say, no, this brother here, he's disappointed himself, he turned back, he recognises it, he wants to put his hand up again and help and we should assist him. Paul said, oh, he, you know, he hasn't got the stamina. You know what's interesting, this word sharp contention? It's only used one other occasion in the Bible, it's the word provoke. All right? So this is that word provoke. It's in Hebrews 10.24, you need to put it in your margin. Hebrews 10.24. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. So here's the two contexts. One where there's an individual argument, a provoking of each other. When Paul documented in Hebrews 10 verse 24, I wonder if he had to think back to this incident with Barnabas. Let's consider. Let's think and meditate and reflect in a positive way one another. And let's actually provoke one another not, not to anger or indifference, but to love. So there's those two quotations. But of course the outcome uh, was particularly sad and the record says they departed asunder. Uh, the word means to sever. It's a, it's a strong word again, only used on one other occasion. 
Revelation 6 verse 14 where it says, and the heavens were split apart. So here's two men going two different directions. The record goes on and says, Barnabas took John. Same word in Acts 9 verse 27, Barnabas took Paul. <laughs> so it's almost like a repeat of a situation. So there was a very um, strong disagreement between these uh, two, two brethren. I've just got this comment here. Perhaps it's something of a comfort in our own disagreements to know that for a time... These two great men were not of the same mind. Sometimes even in our marriages, we're supposed to work together as a team, we see things differently and those relationships uh, can be harmed. Um, we've got to be able to recover from those. We've got to be able to reconcile. We've got to be able to work together and this is really important. And the same experience here was for Barnabas and for Paul. Uh, one writer puts it, I think, a little bit too brutally. And I don't quite agree with his words, but he describes the situation like this. He said, the son, this son of consolation lost his temper in a dispute over his cousin, and Paul uses sharp words with him. Often it's in the little irritations of life that give occasion to violent explosions. If the incident in Galatians 2, so when Barnabas was carried away, had already taken place, there was a sore already in place that could be easily rubbed. And if Mark joined with Peter and Barnabas on that occasion... Paul had fresh ground for irritation. Paul and Barnabas parted in anger and in sorrow. Well, that was the fact. And again, another little sad comment here. Paul owed more to Barnabas than to any other man. And sadly, Barnabas was leaving the greatest follower of Christ. What a sad disagreement between two great friends in which their friendship had been forged in the heat of dispensing the gospel. And it wasn't rooted in their own pride. They just saw things in a different way. But you know what? The outcome was actually quite positive. We look at this situation and think, oh, that's, that's particularly sad. But I'm going to give you six points now as to why this situation actually had a positive outcome. So here's the um, six, six points. First one, Paul and Barnabas kept the problems to themselves. They had a personal disagreement. They, they didn't try and involve or spread it to others, all right? Um, they didn't deprecate each other. They had a disagreement, and there's no indication in the New Testament that would uh, indicate a loss of respect for each other. In fact, I'll build a couple of quotations that show the very reverse. Uh, Paul and Barnabas didn't seek to make this a biblical issue. They recognised this was sort of, a, in a sense, an issue of conscience. Barnabas felt they should give a second chance to John Mark. Paul felt differently. So it wasn't a biblical issue, and sometimes we try and bring Bible quotes in to back up our personal opinion, which is not always right. Um, both Paul and Barnabas assisted John Mark by what they did. Knowing that Paul wouldn't take him probably had an impact on John Mark, and knowing that Barnabas was willing to invest in time, obviously gave him the impetus, well, I, I need to prove myself because I've seen what's happened here. So Mark took his inadequacy seriously and strove to prove himself a faithful man, which he did. The separation of Paul and Barnabas was a cooperative action, not a competitive one. Uh, so they both went on different courses. They promoted the gospel in different areas. So it was a profitable thing. They weren't competing. They just went into different areas to um, promote the gospel. Uh, Barnabas's ministry uh, with Paul had come to an end. Mark needed Barnabas's gift of encouragement much more than Paul did. Uh, the separation of Barnabas paved the way for the selection of other um, disciples and followers like Silas and Timothy, Titus and Luke. So it involved others as well. And finally, the New Testament bears witness to some of the very positive changes in outlook in both Paul 
and Barnabas. Barnabas backed off from taking Mark into more dangerous areas, so he goes into Cyprus, hometown. Um, Mark had successfully served in that area. And Paul, of course, grew through this and he realised he needed to be more sensitive and more tender towards those who are not as thick-skinned as he was. So there was, you know, a learning experience for the Apostle Paul as well. I've sort of talked to some of the brothers and sisters about the letter to Philemon. The Apostle Paul wrote in very gentle terms, and I think that was the Barnabas spirit moving through to the way that the Apostle Paul um, wrote that particular letter of appeal. So Paul maintained his um, high regard for Barnabas. This is at the end of the story, right? Sometimes we get to this um, particular narrative and we think, well, that's a sad end to Barnabas and Paul. But you know what? That is not the end of the story. So there's a couple more quotations that we can bring on board to show uh, the aftermath of this particular event. So we don't see any more activity as far as Barnabas is concerned in the book of Acts. The narrative moves on to focus on the Apostle Paul. But there's a jewel in two final references to Barnabas. So here's the first one. It's in Corinthians. So this was written AD 56. So this is around about five years after this incident. All right, so Paul writes the Corinthian Ecclesia and he mentions Barnabas. And it's in the incident that the, the Corinthian Ecclesia were criticising him because Paul wasn't charging for his services, which seems a strange thing. But they were saying, oh, he's not a valid apostle because he's not asking for financial support. And Paul's saying, well, I, I want to preach the gospel for free and I've got the right to preach it for free. If I've got the resources to do it for free, I'll do it for free. And he brings on Barnabas as a companion in that whole aspect. So he says, am I not free? I'm, a, I'm an apostle. I've seen the Lord Jesus Christ and you are the workmanship in the Lord. Do we not have the right to take a believing wife? The other apostles are doing that, the brothers of the Lord and Peter as well. And look at this beautiful reference here. He, he brings up Barnabas as a great example. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So what he's saying is Barnabas and I, we fund ourselves our gospel preaching methods. We're not going to draw on the financial resource of an ecclesia. Barnabas and I stand together in the way that we promote the gospel. So that's a great commendation. This is five years after that argument. Barnabas is obviously continuing his mission work in another area and Paul uses him as a great example. So he elevates him almost in the, that context to an apostle, doesn't he? He's bringing on the example of the apostles. Of course, he includes Barnabas in that. So there were very few people that were prepared to make the sacrifices like the Apostle Paul did and like Barnabas did in uh, pre presenting their work in different fields. But Paul now exalts in the work of Barnabas. There's no resentment there in that particular quotation. There's no ongoing festering of a different disagreement. Uh, the general, I might say the generosity of the Barnabas spirit here has left its mark on Paul in the way he included Barnabas there. Paul is now a big-hearted man. He recognises the positive element that Barnabas was providing in the truth. And the other one, of course, here is in, in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10. Um, he writes to the Colossian Ecclesia, he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, and let's remember, brothers and sisters, he's the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction. If he comes, welcome him. So here, he's upholding two people. John Mark, commending, and you know who he is, He's the cousin of Barnabas, commending. So again, here's another reference. Uh, so the epistle was written about AD 61. So this is about 10 years on from the Jerusalem conference, 10 years on from the disagreement that Paul and Barnabas had at one stage. And now, again, he's lifting up both John Mark and Barnabas as well. That's the final mention, really, of Barnabas and John Mark. And that's a lovely commendation by the Apostle Paul. I think if you look between the lines, what the Apostle Paul is saying 
In this final comment is, you know what, brothers and sisters, I think Barnabas was right. <laughs> I think that's what he's saying in that quotation there. I think Barnabas might have been right. And the Apostle Paul brings that commendation to these two faithful brethren. Well, as we said, um, Philemon uh, was written as well by the Apostle Paul. We see that Barnabas spirit. And interestingly, the letter to Philemon was written to bring two people together. So it's not in the old style that Paul would have done it, you know, very definitively, brother, you, you need to help Anisimus. He's now a brother in truth, so take him back in. It's written in very gentle terms. It's the Barnabas spirit again. And in Philemon, uh, and verse 24, he says, John Mark, Aristarchus, and Demas Lucas, they're my fellow labourers. So he includes John Mark in that reference as well and counts him as a fellow labourer. And a bit later on, I mean, I'm moving on to John Mark here, but in 2 Timothy 4, verse 11, um, the Apostle Paul, in this final letter, final moment really, he requests that John Mark be brought to him. And this is what he says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 11, he's useful to me for the ministry. So Paul is almost acknowledging, well, he is acknowledging really that Barnabas was right. Barnabas gave John Mark a second chance, and here in this final letter by the Apostle Paul, he says, can you bring John Mark? I'm actually finding him really useful in the ministry. He's a benefit to me. <laughs> That's a, a wonderful comment, really, from the Apostle Paul, who was influenced by the Barnabas spirit. Um, and I think there was obviously some changes in all of those brethren, and that's the story of our lives, isn't it? As we interact with brothers and sisters in ecclesial life, sometimes it's tough, sometimes it's not easy, sometimes people make difficult comments for us to swallow, sometimes there's commendation, that's all nice. But in the swirl of ecclesial life, we're influencing each other, hopefully for good, we're maturing each other, and we're requiring the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in many ways, of course, Barnabas, as we look down at all the positive aspects uh, of his life, he was certainly an excellent support and help to the ecclesia. He encouraged the ecclesia by supporting it financially. Remember back in our first study, this was his first point of assistance, by visiting the believers in many locations, by using his gifts and teaching. He encouraged the ecclesia. He encouraged the Apostle Paul. Just think about that. Here's a man who wanted to go out and preach the gospel. Anyone want to come with me? You know, Barnabas is ready to go. He encouraged Paul by comprehending what God had done in Paul's life by recognising the potential that was in Paul when he introduced him back into the ecclesia, when he got him from um, Tarsus, by assisting Paul in his work in the ecclesia, by helping Paul develop his ministry. As we've just seen, Barnabas encouraged John Mark by forgiving his past mistakes, taking him under his wing and helping him develop personal courage to the point where Paul requested John Mark in his final epistle. And he encourages us today, he's an example of selfless giving, he's an example of his service and his leadership, he gives us an example of his service to his fellow believers. So what have we seen over the course of our week as far as Barnabas is concerned? We've seen that he's a very generous person. And right there at the beginning, starting point, he was practically helping and supporting his brothers and sisters. We've seen that Barnabas was a true friend of the Apostle Paul, the importance of forgiveness. Like there was a lot of harm and a lot of uh, unfortunate circumstances because of the anger of Saul that had its consequence and influence in families in the Ecclesia. But Barnabas was able to look beyond that and see the forgiveness that's in Christ. Barnabas was a good man, uh, the importance of innovation. He went to the Antioch Ecclesia as an investigation on the part of the Jerusalem Ecclesia and he stood back and he admired and he loved the grace of God that was seen in that Ecclesia. Not only that, he was prepared to support the Apostle Paul on mission work, 
He was prepared to take risks and we've seen some of the persecution and the endurance that it required, as we saw this morning, that through much tribulation, uh, we too will enter the kingdom. And finally, of course, we've seen him as a thoughtful brother, the importance of diversity. Sometimes we see things from a different viewpoint and that can be a growing experience for everyone that's involved in that particular situation. So we need to be the, the sort of person that Barnabas was, happy about the truth and trying to influence others for good. So Barnabas didn't walk in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. He walked alongside the Apostle Paul and he encouraged that great man. He was a great influence in the life of the Apostle Paul. So, you know, Barnabas didn't disappear from Scripture because every time we open up to one of the Gospel records, the stamp of Barnabas is there. The consequences to what Barnabas achieved is there. So when we open up to the Gospel of Mark, written by John Mark, that really is an outcome and a consequence of the investment that Barnabas placed in this young brother to develop him. So we've got the encouragement of Barnabas even affects us today. Well, we've got the Gospel of Mark, but we've also got all these letters here, which really Barnabas influenced by bringing into the ecclesia the Apostle Paul and by allowing him through the grace of God to continue to have his impact. Well, tradition says that sadly he was martyred in Cyprus, his home country town, and um, it was a very, I, I guess in some ways, a, a sad end to his life. It's not contained in the, in the scripture of truth, but certainly he was initial in his, his effect for this man Saul, and we think about this whole scenario, if he didn't allow Saul or introduce Saul to the ecclesia, what would have happened to this man Saul? Would he have disappeared into the backwaters of Damascus and Arabia or who knows where? Tarsus left at Tarsus, who knows? So the work of Barnabas is seen in the way that um, it, it sort of distilled out to the Apostle Paul. So he was, certainly was a, a great motivator. I want to finish with uh, one scene really, and, and it's a scene at the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, these two men walked away from each other. They took two different pathways. They separated for a moment. And in the heat of the moment, they probably didn't look back. There was no embrace. There was a flicker of burning anger, perhaps, and some sadness as well. These two men took two different directions in life. But imagine the scene now at the judgment seat, the resurrection, where the Apostle Paul is there. And he's crowded. You can see the Apostle Paul there. He's got all the, the fellow workers that he enjoyed time together. We're in the presence of the angels, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's bestowed immortality. And now there's Paul. And he's moving around all these great brethren that were with him. Men like Timothy and Silas and Titus. They're all there. They're reconnecting after 2,000 years. And then you see a moment there. Someone rushes across and it's Paul and Stephen. And, and, and Paul is there saying, try to make amends for you know, the discouragement he gave and also you know, for his involvement in the death of Stephen, there's this great reconciliation between Paul and Stephen. But then you have this picture that a broad man strides across the ground, a broad man, a solid man, and he comes before the Apostle Paul and they embrace him. It's Barnabas. The crowd almost separates and Barnabas and Paul are reunited together in that beautiful friendship that would last for eternity. And you can see the tears between both of them as they recall the great experiences, the tough times they had together, the valiant stridings, the upholding the gospel. And then from the distance, John Mark runs across and they give a group hug and they're all there joined together in friendship. It'll be an embrace that never ever leaves Barnabas again in the shadows. 
an embrace that will never ever be torn asunder and go two different pathways. An embrace, brothers and sisters, which will be fixed in eternity when the sun of consolation becomes the final consolation. We want to be there, don't we? We want to be there in this moment to enjoy with these great men and the influence they've even had on our lives. And we can be there, brothers and sisters, if we determine to be encouragers and together we develop the Barnabas spirit.